Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. I'm looking at the notes here. <laughs> I think I read the wrong book. Oh, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the book we're reading? Uh, we are reading today. Uh, today we're reading today for the first time. We actually, yeah. You, 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 this, this is all stuff that typically gets edited out. Just so you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I do have to start now. Yeah, because I did. <laughs> I think I read the wrong book. <laughs> we read it live and then talk about it afterward. Uh, today we're talking about the Dark Tower for the Wizard in Glass. Oh no. Mm-hmm. I was scrolling on the Devil's website mm-hmm. where evil books come from. Uh huh. I bought the wizard ass. <laughs> An erotic novel. <laughs> about a wizard. His long, luxurious beard and his muscular bottom. Mm-hmm. The wizard's oh, got cake. Oh, no. I, yeah, he's all cheeked up. Uh-huh. The wizard. <laughs> oh, golly. Well... Uh, perhaps that book succeeded at being uh, more erotic and true to the experience of love than this one. Can you tell me some of the things that happened in, in the book you're talking about? And I'll see if they happen in my book. Okay, well, let's see. Um, uh, there is a lot of like full-throated boning between uh pairs of young people and then also like weirdly parallel complementary boning for for older people mm-hmm okay that's in here okay okay great geriatric bonings in my book too great uh there's a hey uh, hey now everyone needs to <laughs> if they want to yeah <laughs> uh let me think uh there there's a weird repetition of some stuff that we saw in Gerald's game I mean I say it's weird but I it's actually like I don't know it just makes a lot of sense but it, it's uh-huh. interesting to see some of that stuff happen again Many pages of degloving. That was in my book, too. Okay, great. Um, uh, uh, possibly the weirdest and most uncomfortable part is when a young woman gets groped by a witch. Ah, there's a lot of witches. It, it, it is called the, you know, wizard's ass. Uh-huh. But there's witches in there, too. Mm-hmm. That's also in my book. Dang. Well, I mean, basically, you've got all the big overlaps. What about cowboys? Was your book full of cowboys? Yeah, unfortunately, there were a ton of and cowboys. And people speaking Spanish in a world where <laughs> it doesn't seem like any cultures that speak Spanish exist? Yeah, yeah, there was that. And also, these these same people are constantly uh, using, like, uh, archaic English grammatical forms. That are also... Yeah, like it, it's ancient days. <laughs> that are also completely incorrect. In the funniest ways possible. All of mine were correct in my book that I read. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, wait. Ooh, 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 ooh. 
Oh my God, Michael. Uh-huh. I've had the worst dream. Yeah, tell me about it. You were there. <laughs> and you and you and you. <laughs> it was, I was reading a terrible book. Uh-huh. And it had this awful frame narrative <laughs> of a book I did want to read. Yeah. And it was only 80 pages on the other end of 700 pages of a book I didn't want to read. Yep. Wow. It sounds like you read The Dark Tower 4, Wizard in Glass. You know, I, I'm making a joke mm -hmm. because I found this book much better. So here, here's my, uh, here's my uh, time base, my chronological evaluation of Wizard in Glass. You ready? Okay. In roughly two, that when this come? Uh, yeah, in roughly two two thousand three. Mm -hmm. This came out in nineteen ninety seven. Just by the way, to clarify what Cameron said, which you may have misparsed, listener. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I was no. Sorry, I was going to say when did Wolves of the Cala come out? Okay, is that two thousand six? No, that's like two thousand three, two thousand four. Okay, so this is maybe like two thousand two thousand two. Then okay, okay. yeah, two thousand two. I read Wizard and Glass. In the sequence, you know, and Wolves of the Cal is like a year out or something. Mm -hmm. And we know that at the time. And I go, this is one of the greatest books ever written. Mm. And then in college, I read it again. And I go, this book's okay. It's fine. You know, a little, little ropey in the middle, mm -hmm. but mostly fine. Mm -hmm. And then like three years ago, before we did this show, I reread it again. And I thought... This is the worst book in the series <laughs> by like a big margin. Mm -hmm. And we have, I've now read it again for this. And I think this book is okay and would be way better if, if 200 pages were cut out of it. Mm -hmm. And say it with me, folks. Say it with me, listeners. The method is paying off. <laughs> because this is such a culmination. Uh-huh. Of the last 20 years of Steve. And you know, the past couple books we've talked about, oh, the Dark Tower's here, the Dark Tower's here, the Dark Tower's here. The Dark Tower is here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's all getting fit together, and especially with this weird afterward that's in it, too. Yeah. Right? Like, mm -hmm. he's really being like, I'm on, I'm Dark Tower pilled. Yeah. And the only thing I care about is the Dark Tower now. Uh, even though I, it takes me forever to write these books, I'm in it. So, uh, you know, I think doing the show has made me appreciate this book way more. And this book is great for the first 400 pages and then really just falls apart mm -hmm. um, in a way that is predictable. I mean, I, we'll get into it, but it is predictable based on the past 15 Stephen King novels I've read. I could have probably told you, you know, in, in uh, absolute absence of time and space, how it would fall apart based on how he's been writing books for a little while. Mm -hmm. But it is fascinating to see him in a completely different genre stumble over all the same problems um, that he himself was admitting to in the afterward. You know, he's yeah. like, eventually the book got so long, I didn't know what I was doing. So hopefully <laughs> it makes sense. I'm like, what are you doing, man? Just cut, just edit the book. Just cut stuff. Yeah. Just cut every Susan POV section, <laughs> which sucks because those are generally pretty good. Mm -hmm. But they don't go anywhere, and they produce a secondary plot that you do not have the interest in actually filling. <laughs> like, <laughs> Stephen King is fundamentally uninterested in Susan as a character, because she has two thoughts in the entire book. 
Yeah. Um, and so, you know, if you just cut that from it, which would be a bad thing to lose. I'm not saying, oh, cut Susan as a thing. I don't think the book would really work, uh, number one. But, like, there's big pieces here that are just structural, and they have to do with how much energy Stephen King wants to put into that thing. Mm-hmm. And a little bit of self-regard in that that space, and a little bit of taking your foot off the gas and thinking about the big structure of the book, I think, could, could take this book from being what I think is a very middling book to being an all-star book. Um, yeah. But that's my that's my big evaluation up top. Yeah. I think you hate this book, right? I do. Uh, but just to echo some of your sentiments, uh, the yeah, I would say this book is like overstuffed. Like one of its issues is that there are all these kinds of uh, little like road signs pointing off to other types of story and other types of plot that that could uh, be filled in. Uh, but ultimately, it only just points at them and then keeps along on the track that it's sort of predetermined to have. And so there's a lot of stuff in this book where you're like, oh, that's interesting. What's going to happen with that? Oh, nothing really. OK, uh, well, all right, let's let's keep going to uh, learn about Roland and, and all the stuff that he's doing, I guess, because he is the central character. But I don't know. I thought maybe the thinny was going to have more to do with anything at all. Nope, it's just there. <laughs> Just there to remind you. Yep. <laughs> Making um, what's that? Uh, what's that machine or that instrument where you wiggle your arm in front of it? Oh, a theremin. Yeah, making yeah. theremin sounds. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about we'll talk about that. Uh, and sort of to contextualize this within my own history within like the Stephen King fandom, mm-hmm. uh, I would say that this is kind of the big divisive Dark Tower novel, at least until mm-hmm. the next three ones get published. <laughs> This actually reading this made me go, I don't think the next three novels are so bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think Wolves of the Cow, just like to lay it out. I think Wolves of the Cow is like a pretty fun story. Mm-hmm. It's, again, too long and too bloated. It's got too much going on. But it's perfectly fine. Song of Susanna is one of the worst books ever written. I mean, it's down there with uh-huh. with the regulators, right? And just in terms of why does this exist? Um, why did you make these choices in this book? <laughs> why did you take these characters and do these things with them? And then the Dark Tower, the last one, the, you know, Dark Tower 7, Kanye pre- pretends as if the previous book didn't even happen. Yeah. Like, like the Song of Suzanne is just a weird prelude that is feels, at least, you know, from here a few years out from having read it last, feels optional. It feels like you could skip from Wolves of the Cow to the Dark Tower, and as long as you know, like, a couple key plot points, you'll mostly be fine. Uh, and that book, I think, is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, the ending overshadows it because people have strong opinions about all endings, of course. But, um, but the the everything up to it, you know, the first five hundred pages of that book are really good. Mm-hmm. Some cool stuff there, and they are replicative of some interesting stuff that happens here in Wizarding Glass too. Yeah, yeah, and and so my memory of this uh, on the listservs and whatnot is that uh, definitely there are people uh, who consider this their favorite. Right, there are Wizarding mm-hmm. Glass fans and that persists to this day there are people who this is this is the prime book for the dark tower for them uh and that's a long and storied history there were people Mm -hmm. on the listservs talking about how much they loved wizard and glass how much they like susan and kind of the adventures of young roland um Mm -hmm. and i think i would suggest to those people if that's you just read some westerns (laughs) it's its own genre Yeah, and then there are people who are more like me, uh, except I'm probably more intense in this regard, but more like me and just like, I don't know, I was sort of disappointed in how the 
plot that we've been following just stops and then we digress to a very long other story that sort of doesn't need to be as long as it is and also we kind of already know the main consequences of it and so we're left Mm -hmm. with a bunch of question marks as to like why this happens to such an extent here well the thing that's shocking about it to me and really thinking big structural you know like that's what the show is it's the method right Mm -hmm. is that the outcome of the story has no bearing on anything yeah roland didn't change Mm-hmm. After the story, he became a heart. He became the guy in the gunslinger. You remember yes. that guy? Yes. That guy who killed a kid because uh, the kid was in his way. Mm-hmm. Let a kid die, whatever. Right. Like he didn't change. Yeah. He, he, he make, became harder in some ways. Um, this is a story that is all about like uh, obligation and the things that happened to me to put me on the road that I am on. And by all rights, it is the kind of story that would make you think like, oh, my training as a gunslinger is insufficient to the complexity of the world. I might need to get bigger, Mm -hmm. you know, as a person in order to understand these things. And then Roland didn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And but it gets floated in here to be like, and I won't do this to you. But you did do it to everyone for like 35 years in between. Right. (laughs) Like, like structurally in Roland's story, none of this makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just bizarre. Stephen King wanted to write this story. Mm-hmm. Like, that's so clear to me. Yeah. And he says as much. It, right. Yeah. And and I just don't, I don't know if it needed to be a Dark Tower story. Mm-hmm. I think you could just pop this out, change some names or whatever, because I don't think it actually contributes to any understanding of Roland. And, you know, as the, as uh, the, uh, the grapefruit tells him, right? You'll kill everyone in between here and there. And guess what? He does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, no, it's kind of like, um, let's say you're like watching Star Wars, right? And then in the first 15 minutes of The Empire Strikes Back, when Han Solo has, uh, I don't know, like rescued Luke in, in the snow or mm-hmm. whatever, uh, we, yep. we get a scene where Han then flashes back and we get the entirety of the Solo movie. And then we just, <laughs> right. right? And then we just <laughs> resume from The Empire Strikes Back that point forward, except, you know, we just get five additional minutes where he gets Luke back to the base and that's it. Like that would be the, that's the Empire Strikes Back version of this. Yeah, it's just so bizarre. And then there was none Star Wars for like a decade. Right. <laughs> uh, which I guess that did happen uh, a couple times. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so structurally big weird stuff. Um, but you're telling me that, like, in the fandom, there are people who are big haters. I mean, I think I was maybe a, a particularly vocal hater, but there were definitely people who were just like, oh, I didn't really, you know, dig the whole thing. Like, I'm more interested in uh, Eddie and Susanna and Jake and Oi and kind of their relationship with Roland rather than Roland's past, which, um, you know, this is this was actually a. a the thing that I came around on this time or like sort of my mm. uh, what clarified, right, I guess my understanding or my relationship with the Dark Tower, um, because uh, uh, on air, on record, I am a Dark Tower hater. It happened that this summer I uh, went home for the first time for like an extended period. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, uh, I heard you could never go home again, though. Yeah, I did. It really was real easy. Oh, okay. Yeah, most of my family was still there, and I. Uh, this is the relevant part. I ended up uh, meeting with my sixth grade teacher, um, 
and we were just sort of chatting and she was talking about how because she she loves Stephen King. Uh, and if she's listening. Uh, hi, Mrs. Kidwell. Hello. How are you? Uh, thank you for listening to my podcast. Uh, Kidwell? Kidwell. Oh, I thought yeah. like K-I-D-W-E-A-L-T-H. And I was like, that's the name of a teacher? No. Kid wealth? <laughs> Wealthy in children? Nah. <laughs> but kid well, that's okay. Uh, uh, but uh, she was talking about her memories of me uh, at this time when I was like, this was kind of, you know, the beginning or sort of the height of my, my Stephen King fandom. Uh, mm-hmm. when I was in her class and her memory of me is like being way more into because she does not really care for the Dark Tower stuff, but she thought it was notable that I seemed way into it. Uh, and I think that uh, that was probably true because there was some sense for me then that like the Dark Tower might have something really interesting and cool at the end because I mm-hmm. I had I had bounced off the Dark Tower itself quite a bit. Um, and this was, oh, I, you know, this is post accident. And that's another thing mm-hmm. that is like really hanging in my mind here is that like King's accident is on the horizon. And it's actually really shocking to me, like how quickly that happens. Um, yeah. Right. It's right here. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah. Um, but uh, so after the accident, uh, he dedicates himself to finishing this series out. Um, and the thing that is ultimately kind of interesting to me about Wizard in Glass, which is a book that I did not like. Uh, is the the like Kingian multiverse stuff that is happening here. Mm-hmm. And I am just interested in how that is going to play out. And then we see how it plays out. And so like I get to like cap off the Dark Tower with being like, meh. Uh, but for a while I was like, oh, this could be really cool. And then there was also, as I said before, like King said he was going to retire after he finished it. And so I was kind of like, you know, uh, uh, like, uh, we're near the end of the game, and so I'm just there cheering in the stands, right? Seeing him across mm-hmm. the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, you were just wandering up to your teacher being like, Mrs. Kidwell, are there other worlds than these? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I talked like. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and those are the questions I asked. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, like I, I was probably a vocal hater of this book in particular because, um, like, as I've said on the previous episode about, uh, the wastelands, mm-hmm. uh, like that book hits for me. Like, I love that book and I still love that book and I love so many parts of that book. And this book is dedicated to, uh, Jumping off from all of those cool things and then being like, all right, we're done with that. Here's a bunch of shit you don't care about. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like a, a particularly stinging disappointment for me as someone who for a long time was reading the listservs and being like, I don't get why people are so into the Dark Tower. Like what's going on? And then uh, I finally go back. I start at the beginning and I read through all of the published ones in preparation for Wolves of the Kala. And it's with the the wastelands that it comes together for me. And I'm like, oh, I think I get it. I think I get what people like about this. And then the next book is just not that at all. And so uh, uh, my dissatisfaction tends to be maybe a bit louder uh, for, for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but enough about us. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some reviews that were t- that were uh, at the time that I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were not many that I could dig up. Interestingly enough, there was not a review in the New York Times. Uh, hmm. Yeah, the first mention of Wizard and Glass in the New York Times that I can come up with is actually a, a, a retrospective on King post-accident. And it's just like, it only shows up because they have a list of all the books he's published and Wizard and Glass is in there. Huh. Yeah. Uh... 
But uh, uh, there was a review in Analog, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, I think, is that the subtitle of that? I don't know. Anyway, Analog. Something close to that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was basically positive. It's just like, yeah, cool. Um, Publishers Weekly had a review that was basically positive, uh, but... Mm, analog is analog science fiction and fact. Science fiction and fact. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's, I, not, I was, it's not a... Yeah, yeah, no fantasy. Okay. I, I thought I was combining it with the you know, the other one, the other big one. Mm -hmm. uh, so Publishers Weekly... Uh, this is an interesting review because it's basically positive, right? It's like, ah, this is some, you know, rip-roaring adventure from Stephen King. Uh, but it's also displaying his typical faults, which is that it gets pretty adolescent sometimes, and it's way too long, and it gets kind of nonsensical. Uh, Booklist similarly says, this is good. It's a good adventure yarn. It's also hackneyed. But the thing about King is that he can make, like, hackneyed things really glow. I think that's actually the term that they use, right? That he, he uh, uh, can take a thing that is uh, pretty expected or typical and still, like, do it really well in a way that's satisfying. Um, the Kirkus review was extremely interesting because it, it is, again, basically positive. Uh, but it ends with a... a note of it's also really weird and a little too long and there's supposed to be three more books of this do we really need that i wish that the next three books were the same way as this where it's like 30 pages of just random stuff happening being like we're walking down the the road in kansas <laughs> and then uh like a long 700 page digression to a story and then they come back <laughs> and then and then so like in in current thing the road to the dark tower is only like 140 pages across three books mm -hmm. uh and they just get there it's fine <laughs> although king does write oh, you know we talk about the seven books of the dark tower there is an eighth book the wind through the keyhole and it's this it's another one of these yeah. right of like mm -hmm. a little bit of frame narrative um, and a long flashback. It's about werewolves, right? I don't know. I never read it. Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's about, or I think they're called like skin men, something like that, but it's werewolves. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah it's, it's pretty good. I like it very, for I can't tell you any parts of it. Pretty forgettable, uh -huh. but, uh, it's not a bad book. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, like, I mean, kind of scene setting sort of, uh, a response to this, like the other dark tower books, it was published first by Donald M. Grant in a uh, limited hardcover slipcase edition. You could get like, it was like 1500 copies. They were signed by King himself, as well as Dave McKean, who did the original illustrations for it, because all the mm -hmm. Dark Towers come out with illustrations in them. Uh, Dave McKean, if you don't know him by name, you've probably seen his work because he was everywhere in the 90s do, oh, yeah. doing like dark fantasy stuff. He's illustrated uh, stuff with Neil Gaiman. I think he actually did covers for the Sandman comics in addition to books with Gaiman. Uh, yeah, all of all of the Sandman covers are all Dave McKean. Yeah. So uh, just there. Uh, the Because of that, the illustrations are a lot more abstract. Uh, they, they like clearly seem to reference like places and characters uh, in the novel, but they tend not to represent specific scenes or if they do, it's always like sort of jumbled with other scenes. And that's interesting, too. Uh, anything you have to say about that? I have a hardcover, but without illustrations. Hmm. Yeah, apparently I that's think what the cover looked like, by the way. Uh, the, interesting that the uh, slipcase edition that you're referring to, the Donald M. Grant one is in um, it's in two volumes. Huh, I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm, yeah, it's in two kind of slim volumes. I don't know where they would split, but that is interesting. And uh, they uh, fifteen hundred bucks to buy it now on uh, 
on eBay. Wow. So uh, it's pretty pretty affordable, all told. Really, <laughs> yeah, real affordable. I mean, you know what I mean, like in <clears> terms <throat> of like uh, stuff that's signed by Stephen King and Dave McKean and is in really good condition. I suppose fifteen hundred bucks. That's not. Yeah. You know, I would have thought, like in my head, I was like seven thousand dollars, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, that's the special edition, and then there was the like mass market edition that was put out by Plume. Uh, later in the same year, uh, and that's, I think, maybe, I can't remember now what I did research on this for The Wasteland, because initially, uh, the pattern with these is that the Grant thing would come out, and it took, like, the Gunslinger Grant came out first, and then it took several years before they got a mass market uh, version of that. Uh, I think the turnaround was a bit quicker on Drawing of the Three, but it was still maybe, like, a year or two. I think mm-hmm. it was Wizard and Glass, or not Wizard and Glass, I think it was Wastelands, maybe, that did both in the same year. And then this definitely was uh, uh, Grant's version came out early in the year. And I think earlier in the year and then uh, uh, the mass market version came out in November. So Hmm. Uh, I have a weird version of this book. Yeah. Yeah. My copy of this book is a British version. How did you manage that? I went to a used bookstore and just bought the copy and I was like, it's a little weird shaped. It's like it's squat. It's like maybe, you know, when you like buy a um, uh, like like a nineteenth century novel, you know that shape uh-huh. of book. Yeah, you know, not, not like a full size hardcover book, right? But kind of like slightly bigger than like a Penguin Classics. Mm-hmm. That's that's the form factor here, mm. um, and it's in a weird font, and there's spelling errors all through it. <laughs> <laughs> the like, classic the classic british proclivity for spelling errors maybe it's canadian i don't know b bca is the uh uh edition published 97 by bca by arrangement with hotter and stoughton and a division of hotter headline plc printed and bound in germany by grafischer gottlieb Piovnik. you know i can't read german holy heck yeah, so, uh, yeah, I just bought whatever copy was, like, available, you know, in the bookstore that day. Yeah. Because uh, I'm not choosy, but uh, it did make it, like, more of a march, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Because, like, the smaller form factor does push this thing out exactly to 700 pages. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, like, you know, midway through the Susan plot, and I'm, like, oh, God, I'm a third of the way through this book. <laughs> So there, there was a real physical experience to it. But yeah, it's just a little smaller form factor. It's got a nice, uh, um, you know, uh, dust jacket to it that's unique. Mm. I, don't, I don't know. Maybe I can find it here. Let's see. Uh, Wizard and Glass English British edition, maybe. Maybe. Easier to pull mm-hmm. up. British edition cover. Let's see if I can get one here. I just have nope. a, uh, one of the paperbacks that was clearly published around the time that Wolves of the Kala was getting ready to come out. Uh, because it's got the excerpt from Wolves of the Kala in the back, and it's got the two pictures of Stephen King on the back. His uh, younger author photo, which, as mentioned previously, was the author photo for Bachman in The Regulators, and then his older contemporary to, to now uh, photo. Uh, as you say, uh, you mentioned this, we'll talk about it later. And But in the afterword, like, King definitely is, like, we've talked about the Dark Tower being here. This is the book where Stephen King says, hey, by the way, the Dark Tower is my overarching achievement as a writer. Yeah. Right? Like, that's that's where he makes the actual rhetorical move to push this thing to the center of his, of his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the um, English edition, I think. Okay, yeah. Well, that's 
Kind of a boring cover. It's pretty boring. <laughs> it's got a little glittery thing on the front. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wonder what that glittery thing is. Who could know? Maybe I should summarize this thing. Let's start with it. Okay. <clears throat> so, this is the five-sentence summary. It is where one of us summarizes uh, the book that we are going to talk about in five sentences. It is something that we come up with. Uh, off the top of our heads, we're not taking a long time reading some other person's summary. We are just trying to condense everything down into five sentences. Let's see if I can do it, because it's my turn this time. One. We join Roland, Eddie, Susanna, Jake, and Oi in their riddling game with Blaine the Mono, and it is not going well until Eddie realizes asking Blaine intentionally silly riddles fries his logic circuits. Two. Okay. They crash safely in Topeka, Kansas, which has been devastated by a mysterious and deadly plague called Captain Trips and is also host to a weird mist-like breach between worlds called a thinny. Three. Hmm. To pass the time... Roland tells everyone a story about his absurd cowboy childhood, the only meaningful outputs of which are he got his teenage girlfriend killed and there are magical glass orbs made by a wizard ping-ponging around the multiverse. Mm-hmm. Four. The next day, the crew continues through the Fenny and finds the royal palace from the Wizard of Oz. And who do they find inside but old Randall Flagg himself, who capers and chortles before fucking off without having done anything. 5. Roland tells everyone that one of the magic orbs that I already mentioned eventually tricked him into killing his mom and he is doomed to kill everyone close to him in his pursuit of the tower, but no one else has a problem with that. The end. Yeah, it is. Um, it's funny that Roland tells this whole story mm -hmm. about his conflicted reality, you know, as a child and all the decisions and mistakes you make, blah, 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 all that stuff. And all of his friends go, yeah, that's fine. Whatever, dude. <laughs> yeah. You killed your mom? Okay, whatever. We're not worried about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, they almost say, more or less, at the end, they're like, you know, we're basically already dead. <laughs> like, relative to the lives that we were leading before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. We killed a giant cybernetic bear. <laughs> this, this, this wizard's orb is nothing for us. Right. <laughs> we accept that you could be tricked. Yeah. By magic. I'm willing to say that right now. I'm willing to accept that anyone can be tricked by magic. Anyone can be tricked by magic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just to lay it out uh, for the listener who does not read along, in those five sentences that I just described, uh, four of the sentences encompass maybe, so my edition is, a, as I said, a paperback. It's also about 700 pages even. Uh, the Four of those sentences encompass like 200 pages, and then the other one sentence encompasses 500 pages. Hmm. 
Like that's that's how how big the absurd cowboy childhood flashback is. Right. <sighs> Good God. So there was something that you said way back mm-hmm. in possibly the first Dark Tower episode. Yeah. Uh, that really clarified uh, something for me, which is that you find the character of Roland compelling. Yeah. Okay. When when he's when he's uh, yeah. C- continue. Oh yeah yeah. Uh, uh I mean obviously yeah. The, you and I are maybe somewhat on the same level with regard to this book specifically. But you saying that you found Roland compelling helped me understand what it is I do and do not like about the Dark Tower and what especially I don't like about this book, which is that like. First order, I do not find Roland compelling in and of himself. In fact, like the reason when you when you said that you found Roland compelling, I actually had a moment where I was like, oh, people can find Roland compelling. That's a thing you can do. Because mm-hmm. to me, Roland is like uh Roland is like a pure plot device, right? Roland is only mm. interesting uh in as much as like Roland Eddie or uh, uh, as uh Eddie, Susanna, and Jake are there to kind of, like, react to him, right? I'm more interested in kind of, like, their perspectives on Roland. Um, And then also, and this is, like, casting a little bit forward into the future, but there's a Dark Tower novella coming up in uh, Everything's Eventual, The Little Sisters Mm -hmm. of Elluria, which I like quite a bit. And the reason I think it works for me is because it's also an adventure of young Roland, which is if there's a big thing about this book that I just do not care about, it is like giving us Roland's history. Like, I do not I truly do not give a damn. Like, I do not need to know this. Everything I know or I need to know about him, I feel like I already know. Um, But Little Sisters of Illyria works for me. Uh, Because he's basically in that story like a Conan style, like wandering hero who stumbles into a situation, uh, puzzles it out and then resolves it and then goes on his way. Uh, So there's something about the type of character. Roland can be a different type of character in different situations. And there are some of those that work for me better than others. Yeah, I mean, I find him to be an interesting character when like Stephen King remembers that he has a goal. (laughs) Like, and I mean that really, right? Yeah. Like, when Stephen King remembers that that Roland's whole deal is the Dark Tower and that he wants to, you know, get there and anything in the way can be dismissed, no matter how important or personal, Roland's compelling because it's, it is, I you know, I like reading characters having to make bad choices. Like, that that is a, a compelling, um, like, uh, genre mode, you mm-hmm. know, like. You know, I talk about the left hand of darkness a lot across our shows, and it's only because, like, I've taught it so many times, it's, like, kind of easy to hand. But, mm. uh, you know, that that's some of the best parts of that book, is, like, Estraven being like, all right, well, I got two bad choices in front of me. What am I going to do? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I guess I'll figure it out. Um, and that's what makes it thrilling, right? Is like, in reality, in our lives, most of us are having to do that, right? Like, very, very rarely in our actual life, are we making a choice between a good decision and a bad decision? We are often making a compromised position between two um, uh, equal or uh, equivalently negative things, right? Like, what's the thing I'm willing to live with? Mm -hmm. And so I like when that's like blown up to universal proportions, right? Like, that's fun for, you know, the choice to drop Jake is a compelling one. Mm -hmm. And here's the flip, right? It's the right one. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the yeah. right decision. Yeah. Uh, he's been chasing this guy since this book, you know, since he was 14 or whatever, essentially. 
Um, and, you know, he's around 50 at this point. Kind of hard to know. We, we learn more about that in Wolves of the Caliph. But, you know, it is it is from Roland's perspective at that moment in the, the choice that he makes it, he that's the thing to do. And the stuff that he does around um, the pusher, right? And killing him and knowing that he's like breaking some weird timeline thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then having to live with that choice or making a, a deal with the devil, you know, making a deal with the speaking demon and all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, to to pull Jake or to learn about how you might um, uh, draw Jake and all that stuff. That's good. And there's some good stuff in Wolves of the Cala around that too, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but uh, ultimately, I think that's why this book isn't very good, is that it replaces or or asserts that there was a different Roland there first. Uh-huh. I think it would be more compelling for Roland to have always been there. Right. Um, because and this book introduces, I guess, a major complication, which is that in order to win the battle with Court in the Gunslinger, we all remember that, he sacrifices his his hawk David. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a sac- and so you would reading the Gunslinger, you draw a line from David to Jake and you go holy shit, Roland will do anything, right? right? Like, nothing means anything to him. It is all a shadow of the goal. And so then you have to read Wolves, or not Wolves, like how you have to read Wizard in Glass and be like, oh, wait, David's like a weird precursor to this other stuff. It doesn't really say anything about him, his personality at the time. It's just a, a decision he made. And in fact, he's just like a regular-ass Stephen King teenager the rest of the time. And that mm-hmm. sucks. That's bad. Like, right. that, it just doesn't work. And if I wanted to read a young adult novel about teen romance, I could do that because that's like a robust genre. And in the world, you know, YA transformed quite a bit in the early 2000s uh, or late 90s, early 2000s with Harry Potter. Right. And that became its own kind of really distinct and full genre. But the vast majority of YA books that I read before that time. A chunk of them like cash out in teen romancy stuff. How, how do you make these decisions? Whatever. I'm not saying that that's like not a novel kind that should exist or whatever, right? But uh, Stephen King trying to staple that onto his pre-existing story about Roland just feels bad for me. Um, and I guess that that is complemented or or matched with what does really work, which is the cotet stuff mm-hmm. uh, with him and his other gunslingers, right? Yeah. Uh, that works great. Uh, and that's some of the best stuff in the book, I think. Mm, I think I disagree. You don't think his like like I, I know I know that it's supposed to be Keyuthbert. Yeah, that sucks. His name's Keith. Cuthbert. <laughs> okay? OK, I'm not into it. His name's Cuthbert. OK, you can say whatever you want. Audience out there, you can do whatever you want. But no, I really like the um, Roland is meant to be their leader. And the only reason he is their leader is he is the bravest among them, right? Like he is mm-hmm. someone who made an objectively bad choice. <laughs> he was provoked into by a wizard, yeah. right? And and then he won against all odds, right? He He's the Jonas who succeeded. And we don't even so, know who Jonas is yet. I, I know. We'll get, we'll get there. Because he's the other really cool part of the book, I think. I like him a lot yeah. uh, as a character. Um, but he's the one who succeeded, and it's not because he's more mature than they are. It's not because he is somehow more gifted, although probably he is. He's probably a faster gun than they are. Um, it's not because really anything inherent in him. It's a little bit of a swerve of fate. You know, it's Ka. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is, you know, King's schmaltziness about the kind of um, uh, kingdom of heaven outcomes that we've talked about in the past few books, right? That's getting folded into Ka here, right? You know, God has a plan. Yeah. Uh, Ka is like a wheel. 
Um, and so, yeah, so there's a little bit of the split here that goes on. These these people are best friends, him and Cuthbert in particular, are best friends. And now there is something else in the mix. And so this kind of preternatural connection they have to one another is is driving his friend kind of insane. And then there is just the really emotional. Uh, I, I've heard it said Elaine and I've also heard it said Alan. Mm hmm. I don't know. What's our call? I'm an Elaine truther. Okay, so let's do an Elaine. I don't care. Yeah, people know I'm unafraid to mispronounce. Yeah. Uh, You know. Cuthbert. Uh, But, uh, uh, yeah, Cuthbert. I'll go for it. I don't care. Uh, And, you know, and he's kind of caught in the middle, right? And he's like, look, man, there's like a metaphysics to how this shit works. And if you if you break with Roland, like it's going to fuck the whole thing up because I'm, I'm a psychic. I've got the shiny. Right. right. I know that. And I like all that. I think mm-hmm. all that's super cool. It's just, it doesn't get enough stage time, you know, compared to um, the constantly repeating love plot. The, 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 the stuff with Susan. Uh, uh, yeah. Is a great character, but Every scene that is her as a POV is her repeating the same two things over and over again. It is the worst habits that King had writing all those books about women in the early 90s, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it is it is not Dolores Claiborne here where she is evolving and changing and doing uh, interesting things. She is uh, immediately she, – she begins the book in the place that she ends the book, which is like – I've made a huge error by deciding to be the um, kind of surrogate mother, you know, to the the heir of the mayor, uh, because I'm like this kind of side woman, you know, they keep calling her a gilly, mm-hmm. right? There's yeah. a particular thing here, right? There's like a more technical term, but that's the one everyone uses. Um, I've made a huge error by doing that. That is constraining my life. And then the second thought she has is, oh, Roland is here. I want to dedicate my life to Roland. That's mm-hmm. it. Those are the two thoughts she's allowed to have. Now, there's a couple like plotty plot things she's allowed to do, but for the most part, um, she's got 200 pages, maybe 150 pages of POV here, and King does nothing but tread water. And then when her and Roland match up, it's literally the same scene written 10 times. Oh my God, we're together. Mm-hmm. We love each other. We're having sex in a boathouse. Right. We, we can't tell anyone about this. We, in fact, we get a whole list of all of the places around town that they bang. Yes. And 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 it would be fine if that were it. But we get that written out so many times, like the like the blow by blow of what the scene is. And so her, everything around Susan, which could be very interesting, is compressed into essentially uh, the two thoughts she has and then her effect on Roland. And mm-hmm. that is it. She is barely a character for someone to get so many lines. She barely gets to be a character. Um, and she's really cool, right? Like her dad, you know, being the horseman and being kind of like the, the big rancher who had to get killed in order to let John Farson stuff happen to let the rebellion go on. Like that's a really cool plot. And the little bit of time she spends figuring that out is really cool. That's 15 pages of 150 um, and it's just so disappointing to me mm-hmm. not to rant for uh, <laughs> a full five minutes, but so disappointing. Yeah. I mean, I think so. I agree with you on all the Susan stuff. And I think I diverge from you on uh, the Cotet stuff, if only because I just feel like it's it's so thin. Um, it is thin. Yeah. And the the thing that is most interesting to me about that, about that whole thing um, is 
and I don't know the degree to which King is doing this consciously. Like there are some ways in which this book is doing some stuff very consciously, right? Though, uh, uh, so we have Roland, uh, Elaine, and Cuthbert, uh, the three kind of like you know boys uh, coming from in world uh, uh, to do a census, quote unquote. But really, they're like one doing some make work because Roland is pissed off his dad, but also they're there to kind of sniff out whether or not there's any treason going on to mm-hmm. the, what what we now know is called the affiliation, right? The kind of, um, uh, the, the standard order of Roland's world, uh, that is under threat from a rebellion led by a guy named John Farson. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I can, can I, can I issue a small correction? Sure thing. He didn't piss off his dad. Uh, his, Roland uh, kind of becoming a gunslinger puts him in the eye of uh, of Farson and the kind of conspiracy and Martin like infinitely more than before. Right. That was supposed to be a thing where he uh, he challenged court and lost and then would be cast out. Right. It was a way of getting rid of him. Mm-hmm. And he proved that he was stronger than that. And so it's a way of protecting him. Right. I think that does matter, actually, okay. like a lot. All right. So uh, relative to what you just said, right, there is a parallel then with some characters who show up in this uh, uh, barony that they are sent to. It's a barony called uh, Magis or Magis or Magis, however you want to say it, because there's a kind of um, vague southwestern America like United States or even like northern Mexico kind of thing to it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh so there are uh, these guys there, these mercenaries uh, called the Big Coffin Hunters. Uh, and they are led by a dude named Eldred Jonas, who is a uh, he was a gunslinger in training in Gilead. He challenged Court's father, uh, failed and was cast out. And so he's like a, a gunslinger in, or like failed gunslinger in exile, like permanent exile. Right. He's been sent to the West and to the West. He shall remain. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, that's like some of the good you're stuff here there. right now, but you're still in the West. Yes, that's good. That might be one of the best things Stephen King's ever written. Uh huh. Uh, and he has uh, his two like cronies, this guy named DePape and another guy named Reynolds. Um, and they are clearly like like they are they are mirrors of Roland and his quartet, right? These three guys. And then uh, Susan gets pulled into the quartet uh, as kind of uh, so Cuthbert gets really upset because Roland is distracted by her like, oh, you're in love. Like we're we're being distracted from the mission. There's obviously sedition going on here. We need to be on it, Roland. What's your problem? Uh, but then eventually it's uh, gets to the point where like, well, you know, this is Ka. Like Susan was a problem, but also she is going to be in some ways useful to us. Right. She is part of the Kotet, too. She is part of our fate. Uh, she gets paralleled uh, with um uh, Coral Thorin uh, in the Big Coffin Hunters. Uh, Coral and uh, Jonas end up hooking up, and she is the mayor's sister who also doesn't think very highly of him, and then ends up being complicit in their uh, in the Big Coffin Hunters plot to kill the mayor and frame Roland and his friends. Mm-hmm. So there's this very clear like paralleling structure going on that is also. Uh, in the frame narrative with like our present day quartet, uh, uh, a parallel, right? Uh, Roland is obviously still Roland. Um, but, uh, Eddie is, uh, Cuthbert, right? He's like sort of the funny Mm -hmm. one. Um, Elaine is Jake because he's the more thoughtful, sensitive, and slightly psychic one. 
Um, and then Susan is Susanna. And obviously there are some very big, like the, the name echoing there is uh, intentional, it seems like. And there are some very big differences between the arrangement with like Roland's present day quartet and this quartet relative to like the whole Susan Susanna dynamic that's going to become relevant in the next three books. Um, but uh, yeah, like that's interesting to me from kind of like a structural position because it feels like King is working uh, uh, these big uh, uh, character parallels in a way that he hasn't really before. And then also, I just feel like so little actually comes out of it that I don't quite know why it's happening. <laughs> I know I think a lot comes out of it. I mean, hard to hard to say it without going into you know, future book territory. Oh, that, that's but, what, I mean, in this book, so little seems to come out of oh, it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nothing. <laughs> nothing happens with it. Well, I, it allows you to, uh, because it becomes, I think, pretty clear that this alignment is going on early. I, I think this is partially why you find the ca- the Cotet stuff so thin, and I don't, is mm-hmm. that uh, I think we're meant to read, oh, yeah, Cuthbert is Eddie. And so you import that dynamic immediately. Mm-hmm. And like Roland's told us so many times, right? Like, oh, you're just like my friend, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, all that stuff. And so like it allows you to shortcut a lot of relationship building that way, I think. Mm-hmm. And to be like, oh, if the Cotet were in a, you know, our current Cotet, you know, the Wasteland forward, if it were in a moment of peril, like this is what it's going to look like, right? It's going to be there's there's alignments with other people. There so far in the wasteland in particular, right? Like in and uh, 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 in the drawing of the three two, Roland's the central hub, mm-hmm. right? And then the spokes come out to these other characters. That's not how a cotet actually works. Like they're all connected to one another, mm-hmm. um, and so in some ways, this is paying off the like sending. Um, uh, Eddie and Susanna by by themselves, right, to go to the cradle and figure all that out, right, splitting the team, right, um, is that they're their own part of the quartet and they have their own relationship, and that one's overridden by like um, romantic stuff, and so it's easy to kind of read through it as like, oh, it's the couple going and doing it, but here I I think he's just working out like what is the when we talk about Ka and we talk about the Ka-Tet in his imaginary and his kind of like metaphysics that he is inventing here, how does it work and what does it do and how does it create connections between people? And breaking a Ka-Tet feels like apocalyptic here, you know? Um, there's a conversation that that Elaine and Cuthbert have where he says, where Cuthbert says, our Ka-Tet's already broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to kill Jonas and that's going to like resolve everything. And, and and then we'll get the hell out of here and we'll go home. And Elaine says, if, if you do that, you know it's not actually broken because you would feel it if it was. And it's not broken. And because of that, you are still bound by honor uh, and by obligation and by something else, right? This kind of like, ooh, what is this? Um, and it, and if you do that, you're doing something so much worse. I I just feel like all of that stuff is is really getting elaborated on here in a way that is uncharacteristic for King because he is not beating us over the head with all of it. Mm. Um, And I think that that's why parts of the Dark Tower 7, you know, not to like kick too far forward, but I think that's why parts of that book really work for me in a way that it seems like they don't work for some other people is that I I feel some of the stuff getting cashed out there. You know, like, right, this is not shocking, perhaps, to find out that the Kachet might get broken, you know, at the end of these books, right? Like, something, some things will happen there um, where uh, it's the end of a series and this is a big team of people, and so things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that that stuff does work for me. Uh, there's there's actually uh, an allegiance here or, or an alignment or a connection that you did not mention in the Cotet. Yeah. Uh, from our current one to the uh, um, Wizard and Glass one. Would you like to fill in the, the final blank? Uh, so uh, the contemporary Cotet has, of course, an animal companion named Oi. I don't know if this is what you're aiming for, but it's definitely it's the one that yes. I, I, yes. I, I, I excised so we could discuss it on its own terms. Uh, Present day Cotet has Oi the Billy Bumbler. Isn't he cute? We love this mascot character. He's an animal who uh, has a limited capability for speech and is seems cleverer than most animals. Uh, quite unfortunately, there is a compliment to Oi in the flashback. Um, he is a guy named Shimi who has an intellectual disability and who is basically like their Tom Cullen. Yeah, he is a he is straight up Tom Cullen. Yep. Um, uh. Uh, enough capability to go and do independently uh, tasks they ask him to do, but not enough to be like a full human being. And I say that, you know, in terms of like what the book is is presenting to us, right? Like mm -hmm. if he doesn't have someone to order him around, he just doesn't know what to do in the world. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, that's always like that is the connection there. Yeah. Um, and Shimi dies off screen somewhere, too. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's like, so uh, uh, the big arc for this book, right? The All the stuff in the flashback I didn't lay out. Uh, uh, Roland and the Cotet have been sent to Magus. Uh, there's a witch there named Rhea of the Kuos, who we'll talk about because she actually rips. Um, I don't. Yeah, yeah, this is where yeah. this is where me and you and Michael, we hunt. We we <laughs> part ways. I think she's a terrible character and a <laughs> terrible villain. It's just... That to me, I think you could cut all this too. Yeah, you could. You uh, absolutely could, yeah. <laughs> and it would make the book so much better. I just, I just like her because she is a character who is just there to be evil constantly, unceasing. Yeah. It is, she, yeah, it's fun, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's fun in this book because she is, she's the little evil gremlin from, um, um, uh, gosh, Insomnia. Oh yeah, yeah. No, she is. Uh, uh, uh. Atropos. Was that his name? Yeah, Atropos. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Atropos. Yeah, she just collects everyone's, like, bad vibes. You uh -huh. know, and he had it in, like, an ancient bicycle wheel or whatever, yeah. right? But, <laughs> and she just has it in her little orb that she does, and she's just there to, like, stir shit up and make things bad and kind of make the plot go, right? Uh -huh. Like, in the same way that Atropos is, too. Yeah. Um, and so I feel the same way about it, where it's like, I don't know. I at least like with him that, like, someone got to uh, rustle him up at the end and, like, beat him up some. Yeah. Do some like like extreme you know torture shit on this evil <laughs> metaphysical goblin. God, it is still so funny to look back on in Insomnia and realize that that is a book that uh, like has a scene in which two senior citizens like tie up and abuse an elf. <laughs> yes, yes, they torture an elf. They don't just abuse the elf. They they do straight up torture to him. And uh, what's so funny about that too, right? Is like King has this imagination. Uh, that shows up in this book. There's a reason I'm saying this here. It shows up in this book of like, it takes an adult to torture. You know, you got to get hardened by life. A teenager is not as good at torture. Yeah. By the way, we see some teenagers blow up a dog's head. So I'm not exactly sure that that's true. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe it's just gunslinger kids who have a problem with this. But it's funny to connect that up to be like, that's right. It takes a senior citizen <laughs> Uh, with the capability to suck uh, life power out of other people, <laughs> out of out of teen children themselves. 
in order to torture an elf. No mere, <laughs> no mere middle-aged uh, adult could torture an elf. Yeah. <laughs> Requires life experience. Oh, God. So, yeah, they, they, they show up. Um, Roland has a chance meeting with Susan, who uh, has been, as you already described, Cameron, she's been... Uh, not betrothed, but like promised to the mayor of uh, the barony. This is also just like a weird thing is that he's the mayor of this town called Hambry, but is also apparently in charge of this entire barony, which seems equivalent to like a whole province of the affiliation, whatever. Uh, but uh, she's been promised to him uh, and they embark upon like their forbidden love. Uh, and as that is going on, uh, they're also like finding out the Cotet is finding out about all the sedition in in the province or in the barony, because it turns out that the big coffin hunters have come in on the behalf of John Farson and have gotten the mayor and his advisor to uh, basically flip sides. But it's like all secret now. And the reason this is important is because nearby to Hambry is an oil field that they just call Sitgo. So some good, you know, like mm -hmm. post-apocalyptic stuff. It's just like, oh yeah, the Sitgo. Yeah, it's good. Uh, they want uh, John Farson, who is uh, kind of positioning himself as, he, he never appears in this book. He's, spoilers, he's never going to appear in any of the actual books. Uh, this is actually one of the things mm. that I think is really cool. Um, I believe he does appear in the official comic book adaptation. Which you can hear us talk about uh, if you go to patreon.com slash range touch because it is the bonus episode for uh, this particular episode. And boy, does he appear and boy, are choices made about him, which we will discuss more fully on on that bonus episode. But here he's totally off screen and he's clear like he's like a Robin Hood type character where he's like mm -hmm. railing against um, like the the. Uh, the class system of uh, the affiliation, right? The whole like gunslinger knight squire thing, like, and it's very funny because uh, I, I can't remember if it's Roland or uh, one of the other two. It's just like, well, I'm basically like, you know, the hereditary titles don't mean anything anymore. They're just <laughs> symbolic. And it's like, you kids are like, you are hereditary knights. <laughs> like you are, you are the cops of the whole goddamn world. Hereditarily. Right. You literally are a descended from the line of Arthur Eld, and it makes you better at shooting than anyone else. <laughs> One of you is psychic because of your bloodline. Uh, but of course, like the rebels are uh, uh, all like cynical and whatever, and we get a, a yeah. little hint that uh, Far Farson is just going to uh, bring back uh, even more hereditary titles. Like Baron is a title mm -hmm. that has been extinguished, but he's going to bring it back and like reward his followers. But he wants the yeah. oil because there are baronese, but yes. currently there are no barons. Right. Um, he wants the oil because he can he's come into a possession of a bunch of like uh, uh, war machines of the quote unquote old world. Uh, and he can use the uh, refined oil from Sitgo to make those go. Uh, I don't even remember why I was like laying all of this out. <laughs> like, what was the point I was working toward? I do not know. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So 
uh, they find out. I think you're just telling us what is going on. Yeah. Because there's a lot going on. Yeah. Like Susan has uh, an aunt who, uh, after her father died, like has taken her in and has kind of, uh, she's the one who's orchestrated the deal to like put her in the mayor's bed uh, because she thinks that her aunt thinks that this is a way for them to get actual claim to some land that they've been working because they've been like retainers essentially for the mayor. Mm -hmm. Um, for their entire life or like, you know, for generations, the the prime, the primo horse person. Yep. Uh, so that's kind of like her goal. Uh, and then the coffin hunters uh, and the cotet are kind of in a standoff for a while while Roland and Susanna are or not Susanna while Roland and Susan are off doing their thing. Eventually, it all comes around to uh, the coffin hunters killing the mayor Framing the Cotet, Varson's forces invade, but Roland and the Cotet, they've been uh, they've been arrested. Susan rescues them from jail. Then the Cotet goes off and they lead Varson's forces. God, that's a thing to say. They lead Farson's forces into the nearby canyon where there is a thinny. And that's why we start telling the story to begin with is Roland is like, I've seen a thinny before. And it shows up twice in this story. Mm -hmm. Now, Uh, we're about an hour in. Yeah. Let's talk about the actual beginning of the book. (laughs) You want to do that? Can I just finish this off? Uh, No, let's take a big break. It's only appropriate to take a big break Break in in the the middle. middle of this. To, no, you can, but yeah. it would be funnier if we did the other thing. <laughs> it would just be too hard. Right. Uh, so uh, Roland ends up uh, uh, coming up with this plan to lead all of Farson's men into the Thinny. The Thinny eats them all. But while they're doing this, oh, this is why I wanted to talk about it. Susan gets captured, okay? Uh, yeah. Right. Some real contrivance bullshit. Yeah, she gets captured. And then uh, Rhea, the witch, uh, who's pissed off at everyone, uh, but pissed off particularly at Susan for being younger and prettier and like resisting her hypnotic commands and all this stuff. Uh, she uses Susan's aunt to like rile up the townsfolk who still believe that the Cotet killed the mayor. Uh, to uh, cast Susan as a betrayer, and so they uh, put her forth as a human sacrifice and burn her at the stake while all this is going on. Now, the other thing about this, because I I got here from Shimi, so this is like one of the three or four endings of the book that takes, it's it's like walking through quicksand. Like, you're just getting deeper and deeper, and like there are three different plot lines climaxing simultaneously, Uh, and one of them is Susan being kidnapped, being taken off, and we know she's going to die. We know that from the gunslinger, right? Susan shows up in, like, one line in the gunslinger, and what Roland remembers is, like, her dying. This is happening. Meanwhile, Shimi uh, is, like, having a comic relief side plot trying to track Susan down, during which his, like, ornery mule is biting him in the ass. Yep. And tonally, it's so weird. (laughs) Yep. Uh, yeah, the the last 150 pages of this, 200 pages, something like it, are just a mess. Mm-hmm. And they're a mess because King is doing the thing that he's been doing. Like, I, I thought a lot about needful things, right? Mm-hmm. That, like, mm-hmm. that, the, that there's this kind of round robin that goes on at the end of the book to, like, make sure that all the people that we know who are still in the plot... That we know what they're doing at any given moment. And, mm-hmm. and Stephen King is is doing that in order to accomplish like a parallel. Like 
There are parallel timelines. He's cross-cutting like it would be a movie, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to know where everyone is at all times so that we get the tragedy, right? That, like, Roland and his crew are winning in the end at the exact same time when they have lost the most important thing, or at least for him, right, which is Susan herself, Mm -hmm. uh, because she's been captured and is being killed at the same time. It doesn't work, though, because there's so many things. I mean, we're getting Shimi, Jonas, Latigo. Farson's like uh, lieutenant or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Farson crew. Roland. Susan. Olive Thorin. <laughs> right. The mayor's wife who uh, yeah. is like she she is actually good, right? She doesn't, uh, mm-hmm. she's unhappy about her husband taking the Gilly girl, but also knows that she knows it's treason from the get go, right? She, mm-hmm. she knows it stinks uh, from high heaven. Rhea. Yeah. And then, uh, um, uh, her, Susan's aunt. Uh, it, there's one point where we are round robining through all of those people. Yes. Um, and it just doesn't work. It's it, much like the end of Needful Things. It's like this building towards something. And it really makes me yearn for like the simplicity and, and the kind of bravery of a Christine ending, right? <laughs> of being like, and then I learned about what happened over there and I didn't have to be there, right? Yes. You know, to have first person reportage on the moment. I just learned about what occurred and it was terrible. And And I understand why he does it because Stephen King wants to get... Uh, all of this kind of rumbling back and forth so that you can read Roland um, interacting with the Wizard's Rainbow. We'll talk about that in a minute. But interacting with the Wizard's Rainbow, deciding that his life goal is getting to the Dark Tower, and then emotionally turning his back on Susan immediately. And then she is killed. Mm-hmm. Like, like he, that's why we're rumbling all this together and like getting this big like tumbler going of all of these perspectives back and forth is so that you can set that up. Mm-hmm. Like that's all it's here for. And unfortunately, because he has so many balls that he is juggling, I don't think it works. I think it's actually easy to miss what goes on here at the end, which is like Roland believes uh, and to the to the extent that Susanna in the current timeline needs to tell us explicitly the moral of the story. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh-huh. She, she has to verbalize it because it's unclear what happens. But in Roland's mind, his grand betrayal and mistake of his youth is not like any of the stuff they did. It is that he made a decision that he would kind of bend his car toward the Dark Tower. And he believes that there's like revenge that ha- like metaphysically Ka closes the door on Susan. Mm-hmm. And does so by killing her. Mm-hmm. You know, he thinks that his heart closing to her is the thing that condemns her to death. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're just reading the thing, I think that's easy to miss. It, it feels like, oh, it's all this stuff rumbling and tumbling together. But for him, those are like uniquely tied to one another. There, there's a direct connection between them. Um, and I think that's why Susanna has to say it is that <laughs> I think either, uh, someone's missing it right in the production of this book. And, and so King has to tell us, but, um, I, I just think it just falls apart. So unnecessarily, mm-hmm. you know, you can imagine a world in which this, that just the end of the book is rewritten and works so much better mm-hmm. as a novel. It's really disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But no. you want to talk about the beginning of the book, though? Yeah, yeah the good part. Um, so, yeah, they're on Blaine. Blaine is the same as he always was. Uh, we pick up right when the last book stopped. Yes. Like it, like literally the next sentence or whatever. Or it actually might repeat. Doesn't doesn't like a yeah. page of stuff repeat at the very beginning? Yeah, I think it like repeats the last couple paragraphs or something just to give you mm-hmm. the setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, so it picks right up, and uh, it's the riddling contest with Blaine. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, Blaine is really good at riddles. They can barely stump him, uh, and it looks pretty dire. And then Eddie, using his... Uh, what, what, is this the one where uh, we finally get to call him, like, Cause Fool or whatever, right? He's I think so, yeah. Right? He's the funny one of the group, is basically what that means. <laughs> right. Uh, he uses his funny guy powers to realize that Blaine can't stand uh, uh, joke riddles. But before that, some really cool shit... Uh, the Falls of the Hounds. Yeah, the recharge station. Yes. Oh, I love that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. The um, uh, so that actually, there's a couple of cool things here at the beginning. One is uh, when Blaine, you know, Blaine is like running his route for the first time in however many hundreds of years, and we get like a whole little like Fallout town. That's you know, there's just like everyone's dead and it's filled with corpses, and there are just like these robots walking around repeating like cowboy messages, telling people to get to shelters and things. Yep. Uh, and then Blaine passes over, and le- it's like the sonic boom of Blaine passing, like makes all the corpses crumble to dust, and like one of the uh, robots like explodes, and that's cool. Uh, and then Blaine has to stop and like recharge at this uh, station called the Hounds of the Falls. And because Blaine is sadistic, he's like, yeah, you want to see what this is? And so he turns himself transparent again, or, you know, the coach that they're in. And they're Mm -hmm. at this unthinkably huge waterfall that is uh, framed on either side by equally unthinkably huge statues of dogs, like hounds. Uh, and then like the, is it, it's like nighttime and like the moonlight is like shining down over it. You can see kind of like the moon bow, right? Like the rainbow in the waterfall. And then, uh, they can hear like machinery running, like something is like moving inside the waterfall. And then the eyes of the hounds light up and just like shoot at the coach. And that's how Blaine recharges his batteries. And I don't remember if it's, I think it might be Eddie, but, um, someone basically, uh, connects this with, uh, 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 like the stuff with the bear from the wastelands, right? That the old mm-hmm. ones like ascended to a level of technological development that they managed to plug into like the substrate of magic that powers reality. And that was bad. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a, uh, like a Hoover dam, but for magic. Yes. I do like that. They, uh, that Blaine's like torturing them a little bit here. And he, uh, uh, like uh, turns off the noise dampeners uh-huh. so it lets them get like the full sound of this massive like impossible waterfall mm-hmm. um which is you know based on our knowing of the thing you know like um remember when they passed lud right like something had happened in the ground had dropped like hundreds or maybe thousands of feet beneath them mm-hmm. you know there, there's some sort of like catastrophic event that occurred um and i like the idea that maybe these falls are like part of that you know that they're falling infinitely into this big void because we don't really know what's going on on the other side right i don't think we see a river yeah no it's like uh it's described like niagara falls except quite specifically like it's so big that there's nothing to see around it it's just like the waterfall and these statues yeah yeah cool yeah it's real cool uh and it's also uh uh you know just to you know point out an obvious like intertext or whatever it very much makes blaine uh work in the mold of am from i have no mouth and i must scream Mm -hmm. right oh yeah right speaking in all caps and all that stuff but eventually they get him 
Yep. Yep. And I think it, it's like it's sort of corny, right? It's uh, like but it's it's corny in a way that, as I said at the beginning about, you know, King taking kind of the expected thing, but really making it work right. Like the the being a pure logic that loves riddles, hates it when a riddle is based on a pun. Yep. <laughs> uh, that's good. I like that. I mean, I don't know why that's the case, but it is. Yeah. It's, and it just sort of like it, it works, right? It, it feels like, oh, I, this could have been in a Star Trek episode or something. Yes, 100 percent. Yeah. Um, but they get him and uh, he stops right at the end and then they get off and, uh, uh, you know, he's murdered at uh-huh. the end. But uh, that's not the weirdest thing that's happened here today, Michael. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. They find uh, that they find a bunch of like corpses lying around here at the station in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, and then they find a newspaper dated from 1986 talking about how the country and the world are being ravaged by a super flu called Captain Trips. Whoa. Hmm. They also hmm. see uh, graffiti telling them to beware or possibly hail the walk-in dude. Oh, Mm-hmm. But then there's a new, Ooh. yeah, a new piece of graffiti that doesn't. Well, it, it's going to make us think of another book. All hail the Crimson King. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're hailing that bad boy. <laughs> uh, yeah, the stand stuff. I remember reading this book again for the first time when I was, you know, a kid, like working through the Dark Tower and being like, "Hot damn, yeah, cool." The stand is back, except it's like also, uh, it's 1986, right? So the first version of the stand. Published in uh, 79, but takes place in 80, just like 1980, I think. It like skips forward just a little bit uh, from when it was published in the 70s. Uh, And then the revision of The Stand is 1990. So this is actually like a third version of The Stand that takes place in a year in which neither of the versions we know took place, which is Mm -hmm. really cool. Um, the other thing that I want to point back to, I think way back in our episode on the first edition of the stand that I discovered in my research is that the stand, apparently when King first conceived of the idea, uh, he, uh, modeled it explicitly on the wizard of Oz. And it was about a character who seems like a prototype of Franny as kind of his Dorothy, who is Mm -hmm. traveling across the country to get to Kansas rather. Yeah. Like to, to get to Kansas. Um, so King also seems to be like, and this, he can't expect the readers to know this, but it does seem like he is, uh, truly like digging into his own notes and like bringing all of these ideas back and then like mixing them together. Hmm. What do you think about this, uh, Wizard of Oz stuff? Um, I think it is very silly and overdone and, uh, could have been done better, but also like I, I don't know, like King is King is uh as I've said a, a couple times at various points throughout the show right he is sort of singling out a tradition, um so uh, to resume something that came from last month's bonus episode uh, which you can get remember patreon.com slash range touch last month's mm-hmm. bonus episode was uh the sewer special our third sewer special where we took uh Q and A's or we took Q's and gave A's uh mm-hmm. and uh Yanaman wrote in at that point and i mentioned this on that episode uh about he he was reading the wastelands and noticed a lot of things that seemed to parallel elf uh uh bombs uh oz books 
mm-hmm. and gave us an extensive list of all the stuff that that he had pulled together. And I said, I'm going to hold this to talk about on the main episode because here we are in Wizard and Glass and all of the Oz connections become explicit. Um so as Janman points out, uh, we've got like the similar like group structure of four people and a little animal mascot, as in the Wizard of Oz, right? With Toto and Dorothy and uh, her her three companions, mm-hmm. her little dog too. Yeah, uh, they actually talk about Oz a little bit in the Wastelands as well. Um, the TikTok man in uh, the Wastelands, at least in his name, parallels a character from the Oz books, the TikTok man of Oz. Hmm. Uh, the other stuff, like, uh, uh, so Yanaman works through some of the other things that, that he noticed, uh, thinking about how, um, like, the city of Ludd, there's, like, the, the little Lord Fauntleroy character seems sort of inspired by the munchkins from the Wizard of Oz film. Yeah. Uh, things about, like, deadly poisonous deserts in the Oz books, uh, the sort of timeline of, like, children's literature with, like, Oz seeming to line up with Charlie the Choo Choo. Uh, clearly Jake or clearly Jake. Sorry, I was reading my notes. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, King is thinking about himself uh, in the tradition of uh, L. Frank Baum and the Oz books. And specifically, as uh, Baum himself said, he was using Oz as an opportunity to take like classic European fairy tales and uh, Americanize them for, you know, the the children of his own time. And so King is mm-hmm. also uh, doing something similar here with like the great fantasy epic. And this is something Yanaman talks about as well. That all seems uh, true, mm-hmm. but is it any good? Well, so after, after the story happens, right after Roland sits down and tells them all a story in a single night and they're in the thinny. So time is weird. And uh, it seems like it, it's a story that lasts one night, but also lasts weeks. They come out of it. And they've been seeing this building on the horizon. And as they get closer, it turns out it is the palace from the Emerald City from the Wizard of Oz. And it's just there. And they go in and uh, there's a whole bunch of like it, it repeats, right? The, the the famous scene from the movie of them going down the hallway long and dark. And then they go into the throne room and it's very scary. Uh, but, and it, at first it seems like Blaine has come back, right? Blaine is speaking to them from, uh, the throne and Jake is really scared. It can't be Blaine. It can't be Blaine. Not back. Not again. Mm-hmm. But then Oi, oh, our, our darling little mascot, Oi runs over and he pulls back a curtain and it's not, it's not a, a Blaine at all. It's in fact the TikTok man, not mm-hmm. the wizard. But the TikTok man from the Wastelands, who's uh, signed himself over to Randall Flagg. Uh, oh, also, it like manifests Eldred Jonas and all this stuff. Uh, but then the TikTok man just immediately gets murked. Like, <laughs> they saved him from the end of the last book to show up here and die immediately at the end of this book. And then yeah. Randall, yeah. Then Randall Flagg is there and he's like, ooh, hoo, hoo, hee, 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 I'm Randall Flagg, forsake the tower. Well, he says explicitly, he's like, I'm Randall Flagg. Yep. From the other book. (laughs) (laughs) And Roland sees him and is like, ah, Walter or Martin or whatever. Like, those guys used to be two different characters, I think. But now now Roland seems to think they were always the same guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot is done here to, like, compress the Kingiverse, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a big antagonist. It's Randall Flagg. Uh, is Randall Flagg the Crimson King? Ho- who know? 
Nobody knows. Uh, Susanna explicitly asks Roland, who is the Crimson King? And Roland says, I don't rightly know. <laughs> who got, hey, The world moved on, Suzanne. I can't tell you. <laughs> but, uh, and then that's it. Yeah. <laughs> they just wa- wander off. Yep, he says, Flag is like, forsake the tower, and they're like, no, we'll never forsake the tower, and he's like, well, okay, and then they, like, get hypnotized or something, they leave the palace, and they wake up, and Randall Flag has literally packed them sandwiches for lunch. And he leaves a really polite note, Mm -hmm. and the really polite note says, uh, next time I won't be so nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's uh, goofball time. Mm-hmm. It, it takes this into like parody, right? Yeah. Like it, it is silly mm-hmm. in in a way that I do not like. Yeah, it make it make me sad. Yeah, it's a uh, and it's it, it it's uh, a good example of the way that like when King wants to make an illusion, he can't just like let it sit. He has to like scream it at you because when Roland, so, you know, at the end of Roland's whole deal, he ends up looking into this magical glass orb called, uh, uh, the grapefruit, which is, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Let's, let's back this up. To okay. Talk the grapefruit. Okay. Book begin really the book, the whole book, you know, it's called wizard and glass, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the whole book is structure, structured around this thing, mm-hmm. the, the, the grapefruit, mm-hmm. which is the, uh, there's a thing from the ancient times, from the old ones, Merlin, mm-hmm. Merlin, uh, you know, because we got Arthur, so we got to have a Merlin, mm-hmm. and uh, he created this thing called the Wizard's Rainbow, which is like, is it, yeah, 13, mm-hmm. it's 13 different Orbeez, and mm-hmm. they all kind of do a thing. Yeah. You know, so they they show you visions or make predictions or whatever, and some tell you uh, about like other worlds, and some tell you about the future, and some tell you about the past. And uh, it seems that the 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 grapefruit, the pink one, tells you about the worst things of the present. Mm-hmm. Right? Is yeah. that is that true? You it, think I like mean, secrets, bad stuff. That seems to be primarily what it does. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of alive, mm-hmm. which is cool. They have like their own desires and and yeah. impetuses, right? right? And this is like good old fashioned king stuff, right? Like, hey, did you know if you had a technology that would allow you to do stuff that humans probably shouldn't do, it would be bad for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not. <laughs> if you had a computer that could do anything, that could make anything happen, do you th- don't you think that would be bad? <laughs> um, so you know, this is like familiar king space and. Right. Uh, it, the book opens with the big coffin hunters, these like three outlaws, essentially led by uh, an exiled, almost gunslinger, Jonas, um, uh, who, you know, had been taken to Garland and tortured and enslaved and had like fought his way out of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can talk a little bit more intently about him later. But um, he is entrusted by Farson, who uses the grapefruit uh, to give it to Rhea. Uh, who's like, you know, a bruja, right? You yeah. know, she's kind of like the local witch. And uh, so there's some interesting stuff going on with that. And so he hands it over to her and it immediately, basically, she becomes addicted to it. You know, we get yet another king mm-hmm. addiction metaphor, right? Once mm-hmm. you start using the thing, it's really hard to let go. Right. Farson gives um, it up specifically because uh, it's like saps your life force or something. So he knows he has to keep himself from it uh, for extended periods of time. 
Yeah, so he uses it like when there's a big fight coming and he's trying to figure out, okay, where's the enemy's weakness or whatever, or where should I move my troops? But yeah, he knows that if he kept looking at it, it would hurt him. And if he even kept it around himself, he wouldn't be able to keep it from him. So yeah, he, he'll use it and then send it way far away from his army, which is cool. I like that a lot. That's mm-hmm. like a really interesting kind of uh, maneuver. Uh, and it, it's also a really good parallel because that's also what Stephen Roland's father does, right? Mm-hmm. Like he has a tool in his in his back pocket that can uh, help him win, but you have to protect it and you have to keep yourself away from it. And you have to keep it away from you in order to keep it safe. That's what he does with Roland. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows Roland's a gunslinger, you know, perhaps the youngest gunslinger. And so he is powerful and talented, but that could also be a problem, too. So, um, you know, uh, Roland and the the grapefruit get treated the same way here, which is neat. Um, but so that thing just keeps rolling around like so. And everything that kind of matters for the plot eventually intersects with this orb so this is how um Rhea finds out that susan is having sex with roland and so kind of gets the ball rolling ha 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 uh <laughs> gets things rolling with telling people about that right and uh it causes a conflict between her and roland which ultimately pays off in roland killing his mother because Rhea has like a blood you know um uh, grudge against him mm-hmm. um jonas sees it and learns about where susan is uh, and, and that's what allows them to ki- kidnap Susan and kill her at the end it is also what allows Roland to see her being murdered. He never actually sees that happen. He never sees her body. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they do that. So the whole book kind of gets processed through this, this beautiful orb. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the orb is integral because it is also how Roland can narrate the whole story to everyone. Cause there's a bit early on where Susanna's like, wait a minute. Roland, how are you telling us all this stuff that you weren't there for? And he's like, listen to the story and perhaps you'll learn. And it's because eventually he looks into the grapefruit and it just shows him everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roland's really a guy who gets bombarded with like uh, inhuman amounts of knowledge. Yeah. You know, what happened at the end of, of, of the gunslinger, too. Yeah, it did. Yes. Uh, good gosh. Um, but yeah, so it processes mm-hmm. all through that. And so... Um, the other critical part, the thing that you're bringing up is like, it's got to go back to Farson. Mm-hmm. Like, it cannot get kidnapped, you know. Better for it to be destroyed than for, or, or in, in the hierarchy of things, it should not be destroyed. It should go back to Farson. Um, uh, and Jonas is responsible for that. And mm-hmm. so that, that also puts some bounds on like what the big coffin hunters can do. Because eventually they're like, uh-oh, we got to go get this thing back from her. And she's a problem. Mm-hmm. Your favorite problem, it sounds like. <laughs> well, uh, it, she's my favorite problem, but also it's sort of nonsensical because, like, she just won't give it up. And then Jonas is like, okay, sure. Like, <laughs> well, you can come with us. Like, get your little witch wagon out and we'll, like, take yeah. you to Farson. <laughs> I like that. I, yeah. I like the thing because it, it's a real great. King is sometimes really good at character writing, and it's a really great moment because she's so calculating. You know, she's a, she's a well-written villain. Maybe this is the, you know, we hunts claim that this is the greatest King villain. I still don't know if I agree with that. I mean, we had a magical car that was killing people. I, mm-hmm. I hard to hard to put Rhea up against that car, but um, I, I she's so calculating that she knows. Okay, I could shatter this thing and get killed, um, and that would be like a, a, an outcome. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, or I could keep interacting with it. And the only route to continue interacting with it is to go with these guys. And so she does it. So yeah, she, she becomes like this, like weird little JRPG character, right? Uh-huh. Like who <laughs> you like, see, see like in every major plot point. And she's like, I'm here. Yeah. I'm still here. I've got the orb. Uh, yeah, that, that happens. Well, is there anything in particular, her, since you you like Rhea, is there any uh, thing that sticks out to you about her that uh, you want to bring forward here? Because I, I feel like in terms of like rest of the plot, we need to talk about or rest of the book. We got to talk about yeah. the big coffin hunters. Yeah, uh, we got to talk about Rhea. We got to yeah. talk about like the the uh, what's going on with John Farson's rebellion. Probably it's yeah. probably good. And then some of this other stuff you've got marked out in the notes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, I think, I think Rhea is interesting. I also just don't think there is much to her. Like she is, she is what I've said already. She is embodied vindictiveness, uh, mm-hmm. and sort of, uh, she's, she's power hungry, but in a very like narrow, small, mean spirited way. Like she just, she loves to have her little palantir and see all of the horrible things that everyone in town is doing. She doesn't want to conquer the world. She just wants to, uh, like, you know, cultivate and revel in other people's misery. Uh, and I just think she works like it just, Mm -hmm. as you said, like there's something about the way that she is written and how calculating she is that just works. And she is also basically, the only character who can do the the weird pseudo old timey uh talk that everyone in in Hambry is doing, and it doesn't end up sounding awful because you can imagine it in like her horrible witch voice, and it just works mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. Well, I really like the setup that her revenge at the end, mm-hmm. or one of her pieces of revenge, of uh using the rainbow to to uh, get Roland to kill his own mother. Yes, Gabriel. Right. Yeah, yeah, like um. Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah, Go Roland goes into Gabrielle's uh, uh, chambers uh, and the grapefruit is like on her dresser table um, and it lights up and uh, when roll it's like on like a vanity. And when Roland looks into the mirror, he sees coming from uh, behind the heiress, the like chamber curtain behind him, Rhea herself. And so he whips around and he shoots her. But it turns out it was his mother. Yeah, his hands are so fast. Yep. They're automatic. Um I I I think it's such a great, you know, because you know, a thing I was talking about earlier about like hard choices, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and having to make a compromised choice no matter what. And that's where Roland like sings for me. The other word for that is tragedy, right? right. Like I mean, this is a Hamlet um, scene. This is straight up a right, rewriting right. of the scene where Hamlet stabs Polonius behind the heiress. Right. Uh and so uh, and yeah, he thinks uh, she has a snake and, and Rhea, you know, had a snake previously that he killed in another like fast gun scene. Right. Mm-hmm. So she knows that his hands are so fast and she knows that even if his mind, uh, you know, wants to make a decision, the hands are going to do something else. Right. Like the entire scene and the entire trap for Roland is structured around what, what she knows about him, his talent. Um, and so that it, it's such a great thing. And then the additional complication, which is like the Kingian, you know, knife twist, is that di- did Stephen, Roland's father, give her the orb in order to produce this outcome? Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, Roland gives his dad the grapefruit, mm-hmm. and then he, for some reason, gives it to Gabrielle. Right. 
Right. Or potentially uh, she steals it because maybe. She, yeah. Right. Like that's a thing. Like that's an outstanding question for Roland at the end is like to what degree at the end was his mother still loyal to Gilead because she is sleeping with Martin, who is Randall Flagg, who is working for the Crimson King. I forgot he shows up and talks to the big coffin hunters at one point, too. Right. Well, uh, the person who's supposed to stab his father is his mother. Right. Yes. Right. Even though that's never said, I don't think it's ever. So we we find out. So what happens is when they get back to Gilead, you know, this is mm-hmm. this happens really quickly, kind of at the end. When they get back, Roland has been like addicted to the orb the whole time, and mm-hmm. presumably that's where he learns the whole plot of the novel. Is when the rest of his quartet is asleep, he's like orbing all night long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know who wouldn't? You know you got <laughs> yeah. you got that orb. Who wouldn't be up all night orbing? Right. And uh, and so presumably that's where he learns the whole plot of the book is like while he's hanging out one-on-one with the orb and uh, they're back for a couple days hiding the grapefruit. And eventually Cuthbert and Elaine are like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta give this over. You know, you gotta, you gotta like hand this thing over. And uh, so he does. And, but in that intervening time, he learns that there is a cook or something? No, no, uh, like a, a head of household or something, right? Isn't like a, it a, a butler, court magician, maybe? Or not court magician? No. A musician? I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah, ma- maybe. I'm, there, there's like there's a line of stuff. So yeah. like uh, that's one of the people in the basically like someone has brought a poison dagger to court and that's being handed over to someone and that is being handed over to another person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've learned about the first two. Uh, and I also like the eyes of the dragon detail, right? Uh-huh. That it's yeah. coated in a poison that'll kill you from Garland, yep. which is also where the the poison from eyes of the dragon comes from. This is the king of Earth getting compressed even more. And so Roland says, uh, you know, the first two people he alerts his father to or whatever, and that's resolved. And then the but he said, and the person who is supposed to hold the knife and do it, that person also dies. Mm-hmm. It, it, they're taken care of personally, right, is the thing. Yeah. And and there's this kind of gap of like, well, who is that? But then we find out that when Roland goes and kills his mother, that is when uh, there's no one else in the wing mm-hmm. uh, of, of the house, and he is going to see his mother who he has actively spurned. You know, when he, when they left to go to Megis, um, she leans out the window and waves at him and he does not wave back. You know, he mm-hmm. is, he has fully turned his back on his mother. So the, the implication there is his mother is the person who's meant to stab, mm-hmm. uh, her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so he kills her anyway. So yeah, it might be thieving, you know, she might be working for Martin working for the good man. Um, it's delightfully ambiguous in a way that King is not often. Yes. It feels like almost pet cemetery King. Mm hmm. Not, not just the cruel part, because it is cruel. You know, yeah. he guns. He, he's made a matricide. He guns down his own mother uh, because he's so good. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's the tragedy of being himself. But uh, but also it's just, you know, there are these little pieces where this could have gone another way, maybe or maybe it couldn't have. You know, is that the worst part is that Roland feels like it could have gone a different way, but it definitely couldn't have mm-hmm. because in the end she she is dedicated to Martin uh, and. And the rebellion, mm-hmm. and his father is the 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 literal physical embodiment of the you know the inner Berenice. Right. Uh, He's uh, as you might say, king shit of fuck fuck mountain. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Stephen Deschain. Yes. <laughs> 
the the yeah the oldest uh descendant of arthur eld which uh detail i just want to mention now because if not we may forget it i love that uh there's like a painting in magus of uh like we get a little bit of like the Arthur Eld like mythology here, and it's mm-hmm. him. Like there's there's this painting of him like emerging in triumph from a pyramid with his sword that he got. Like he he got he's like King Arthur. If King Arthur got Excalibur out of some pyramid somewhere, which is just yeah. such a good weird detail. Yeah, it's good. Well, all the little additional pieces we get, right? Like everyone has an Arthur Eld cup, like a commemorative cup in yes. their home. <laughs> yes. Like it's like, you know, it's like the Disney 90s, right? Uh-huh. Um, and, and you know, so there's some things that happen in Wolves of the Cala that people are like, yeah, I don't know, too much popular culture, blah, 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 like that stuff. And maybe, maybe it's a little annoying, right? Like I do get it. But like, I don't think you have to read too close between the lines to see some of that stuff already here. Well, um, which I do like. I mean, so the the thing that I uh, was going to bring up and then we did this whole circle around is that one of the things that happens when Roland looks into the grapefruit is he sees multiple things that are clearly modeled on uh, scenes from the Wizard of Oz movie, <laughs> yes, which he doesn't yes. recognize because he doesn't know what that movie is. And then after the story is uh, done, that's when everyone else uh, is like. Holy crap, Roland, like, why were you referencing the Wizard of Oz? And Roland is, <laughs> ro- ro- it, like, they all start, like, talking about the Wizard of Oz, and Roland feels really left out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's something really weird that goes on there, where, like, the grapefruit clearly thinks the Wizard of Oz is, like, a fun thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like that's the only explanation, or that Mer- that Merlin has, like, built into this, uh, you know, into these devices. The the Wizard of Oz is one of the reference texts, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so bizarre. I also like that we find out that the line of Arthur Eld that that is the only living line, you know, it's the final line, mm-hmm. you know, um, Roland is the last one, uh, is, is like an unofficial line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like with a, with a uh, you know, and it's this is a replication of the Susan uh, with the mayor thing going on here, right? Like uh, this kind of, woman on the side or whatever who produces the line but i like that there's something about that too that that the this going back to the the central unifying myth is something that is i think culturally understood to be shameful Mm -hmm. you know there's a there's a but has to be valorized here Mm -hmm. um which i don't know there's something going on about that. that that's really like king's cultural values running into the story he wants to tell and producing something really interesting. Um, I like for the most part, all the world, you know, for lack of a better world, world building stuff we get around Gilead and Magus and all the stuff that the only weird thing about it is it's like, they have to like produce Mexico essentially, yeah. <laughs> you know, in a world that like just doesn't have that right. uh, in terms of like, it's not a different cult. I don't know. Right. Like, who are the culture of people who speak Spanish? Right, right. Well, there's who the, are they? There's this bizarre thing that's happening where, like, you know, uh, uh, the mayor, Hart Thorin, and his, like, fucking twee Middle English ye old Mary name. Uh, but yeah. then there are all, there's like a whole class of servant characters who are so clearly ethnicized as, like, uh, uh, sort of like Mexican, right? They're the ones yeah. who are speaking Spanish and have names like Maria and. It, it's and they kind of speak broken English yeah. a little bit, right? Like she has an accented English in yeah. particular, and they wear sombreros and serapes, and they drink graf, and which I guess is more the heart thorn thing. But yeah. Uh, yeah, there's just a you know, and clearly this is just like King's fascination with the Southwest, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that we've gotten from the past few books. 
So whatever, right? But like, there is no story of like, were, were there a group of people that lived here before and has like the Baronies like essentially colonized yeah, this place? Right. You know, like, you know, in, in a world without history, essentially, you know, the world moved on. Mm-hmm. But weirdly enough, that is a convenient thing of not having to think too much about the history. And I'll be frank, maybe I just don't want Stephen King to think about that too hard. I guess I'm not stressed on it. Um, but because clearly it's just like, I would like to write a Western, please, please Mm -hmm. let me write a Western. I want to have all the Sergio Leone stuff in here that requires people who speak Spanish. Thank you. And goodbye. (laughs) You know, that like, (laughs) that's the logic and beginning and end of it. You don't have to think too hard about it, but it it, it, with so much of the kind of cool world building stuff, right. And connecting Garland, Mm -hmm. um, all that stuff. It really, it makes it feel like, ah, well, I I wish maybe we got a little bit more of that. Mm -hmm. Do we want to talk about going West? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, Jonas gets sent west because he fails as a gunslinger and Court's dad like breaks his leg. And from that point forward, he he walks with a little limp. Uh, yeah, he's got a voice like this. <laughs> yes, his his high reedy voice. He is like of all the like kind of new characters that we meet here. Jonas is the one with kind of the best presence because it's such a like he is such a murderous hard ass. And his presentation is of a weak dandy. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah. That, he he's always like, and everyone takes him like hellishly seriously because mm-hmm. he's a gunslinger, right? Like he misses by a percentile point. You mm-hmm. know, is is kind of the idea. He challenges Court's father and loses. Um, and we know that Roland could have too. You mm-hmm. know, right? Like there, there's nothing other than like Ka, right? Mm-hmm. Other than fate, there's no reason. Um, that that one succeeds and the other fails um and i do like that he's the payoff of what we got in the gunslinger which is like if you fail court breaks your leg with an iron wood staff and you get put out the west gate immediately you know mm-hmm. we, we're told that stuff before and he's like the payoff mm-hmm. um and it's a bad i like it's a bad break you know yeah um and there's something horrible about the fact that that they know that failed gunslingers they go west they go to garland and there's like enslavement there or something, right? Like it's bad over there. Yeah, it, it's a bit like it's a bit more dour than the garland that we actually get in Eyes of the Dragon. Well, we don't really get much. Oh, I guess in Eyes of the Dragon, it's it's kind of like a like a fantastical Arabia, right? Yeah, because yeah, we don't get so. that much about it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what is the name of the kingdom in Eyes of the Dragon. Oh, I can't remember. I can look that up. Okay. But Garland's the place that the poison comes from. Yes. Uh, it's not the place that we are in Eyes of the Dragon. Yeah. It's not Tamriel. <laughs> for some reason, I feel like it is. No, it's not Tamriel. Uh, uh, the. Huh. I don't. It's not on the Wikipedia page. Let's see here. The Eyes of the Dragon Kingdom. Let me Google it. Mm-hmm. What's the name of it? Delane. Okay. Huh. Right. Death chain Delane. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Kind right. of a rhyming thing. Right. Yeah. So yeah, but, Garland is mm-hmm. the place where all like the poison comes from. And yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's kind of like given this kind of uh, Thousand and One Nights feel in that book, I believe. Because mm-hmm. don't they talk about like a carpet and like a. Yeah. There's like sand yeah, and stuff. Some, right. Magic. Whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh you know, here's a much darker, yeah, more kind of brutal picture because um, uh, he is Jonas is covered in scars on his back from whips. Yeah. Um, so there, there's something going on around that. But he's got a gun. 
Mm-hmm. Not as good as Roland's guns, but better than everybody else's guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he can use them. And he's got uh, two dipshits that he can order around. I I love these guys. <laughs> I mean, that that's kind of the thing. Maybe this is why I don't like Rhea so much. Um, I think that Jonas is is the dude. Yeah. Like, he's the best villain. I think he might be the best villain in the Dark Tower period, if only because he is... He he's uh you know he's dark Roland right you know right, what I mean he's right. he's Shadow the Roland right um, uh, Shadow the Gunslinger uh, in that he is he's everything but just with a slight twist and King I think realizes that to the extent that he has to do this again later you know yeah. like this is um, a kind of major character or a major character that appears later as a villain in the Dark Tower is destined to be this you mm-hmm. know destined to be a dark Roland. Right. Um, And whether or not that happens or not will be um, for you to decide and find out, dear listener. Um, But I like all the stuff he does. I like that he is weak, too, like Roland. He's weak in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, He's weak to the grapefruit um, and he's weak to Coral Thorin, who is also a pretty cool character. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's like I mean, she's almost a character. She is a character who you could pull straight out of a traditional Western novel or even like Mm -hmm. a noir novel. Right. The the mayor's uh, she's also an alcoholic. That's another place where this comes up is everyone knows that she drinks, but no one can talk about it because they know it'll Mm -hmm. piss her off. Uh, And yeah, she just she like her her brother became the mayor and she's like well off. She owns the the main town saloon slash brothel. Uh, but she, because of her being a woman, I think, right. She's, she's always kind of wanted more. She's had to kind of like make do with being the, the, the brothel keeper slash, uh, saloon owner. And she thinks her brother's, uh, kind of a, a silly goose who doesn't deserve to live. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, doubles down on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and she and like the what I like about uh, her and Jonas is the way that it does start as pretty mercenary where it's like, uh, you know, jo- I can't, it, there's a pretty good line about this where it's like Jonas uh, basically rarely thought about sex or like rarely thought about women. But if they offered, he didn't say no. Um, and so he starts out uh, just being like, yeah, like Coral Thorin seems like she's into me. Okay, let's try this out. But it turns out they are like really into each other. And so they are having a lot of vigorous sex, uh, which, of course, is the parallel with um, uh, Roland and Susan, uh, like the the kind of like unexpected connection that they have there. And then uh, after Jonas gets killed, what is it? We find out that she goes with whichever of the coffin hunters. Reynolds. Lives. I think yeah. Reynolds lives, right? Right. She becomes like his woman. And then they basically become uh, roaming bandits who get shot down in a scene that seems like it is uh, intended to echo the regulators where uh, like a town sets up like a fire corridor. And when they ride into town, mm. they just like blow the shit out of them. Oh, you know what? We didn't talk about this before. It's not it's not just the regulators. It's that scene from it. Oh, it is. Where the town I didn't think about that until you've brought this up. It's yeah. the scene, yeah, from where the whole town gets together and they slaughter the bank robbers. Yeah, it's the same thing. Oh shit. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Oh. Huh. Yeah. But yeah, so they do that. I like that too, that you know, the the world's moving on and like bank robbers are a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bank robbers weren't a thing before. Um, yeah, it's delightful. Yeah. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? 
I mean, we've talked about like the love plot with Roland and Susan, but it's just kind of mm-hmm. there. I know there are people who find this very moving and like very compelling, but to me, it's um sort of hamstrung by the fact that we know that it ends in tragedy. Uh, mm-hmm. But and, and, and it, it, it wants us to know that like one of the epigraphs for this book is a quote from Romeo and Juliet. Um, and at the same time, it doesn't, for me at least, quite sink the the feeling of star-crossed lovers. No, because they're not star-crossed. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no reason they can't be together other than than uh, a promise she made. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, um, ultimately, I don't know. I, Susan eventually gets to the point where she realizes, oh, I could just pick up and leave. Mm-hmm. And that was true minute one. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, you got to work there, all that kind of stuff. I, I get it. But there is a um, the set of obligations that she feels that keep her kind of to it. That's that's just processed through her obligation to her father and to be a kind of a promise um, to be promise bound. Right. To break mm-hmm. your word is to do something horrible. Right. But that is also counterbalanced by the fact that she would think that her father was deeply, deeply ashamed of what she is committed to doing, which is being this kind of uh, woman on the side who produces the heir for the mayor. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, in a in a more deftly written thing, we might have a better psychological profile of that or like a whole book dedicated just to her. But like th- this is just just enough to like give you the schematic of why she's doing it. And not nearly enough for King to convince me that like any of this makes sense or mm-hmm. that she has any kind of psychological depth as a person. Because again, like I said, she's got like two or three thoughts and she just repeats them over and over again. And I mean, that's made worse by the method. Hey, y'all, the method's <laughs> paying off because King can do it. Mm-hmm. I read Dolores Claiborne. <laughs> <laughs> I read Rose Matter. He can do it. Right. He's just choosing not to. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I, I like the the arc that the method makes very clear here, which is just such an interesting arc, is that the 90s have seen King uh, kind of, you know, try to get his footing with sobriety, which then leads into his novels about women, which then seems to lead into novels about God and cowboys. And then yeah. this. Yep. Right. You got it. I mean, it's just. I mean, it's just such a weird trajectory to observe. Like, oh, yeah, all like all the stuff in the regulators and in desperation is uh, like also downstream of him doing basically like firsthand research of the stuff that is going to become this Dark Tower novel. Yeah. Right. Uh, And it is, as you say, like, I think somewhat disappointing. So uh, I mentioned this in in the intro, right, that um, there is a couple points where uh, the mayor uh, Thorin, he like corners Susan at his house and uh, uh, sexually assaults her in the mm-hmm. same way that uh, Jesse is molested by her father in Gerald's game. Oh, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Right. It, it's, so pretty, it's it's pretty close. Right. Um, and it I, it's again like the method paying off or, or dubiously in this case. But like seeing these repetitions, it is interesting to see all of that like come back around and then have. Susan, be unfortunate in that she could have been a deeper character, right? To to talk about the Romeo and Juliet connection, like the thing about those characters that makes them work, maybe, is that they both like they both have a clear affiliation to their respective houses. 
the houses are set against each other, and then they decide to pursue their own romance, like, regardless of what their families say. And then as you say, like, uh... There's nothing like there is nothing of sufficient weight between or like in terms of the friction between uh, Roland and Susan uh, because she's made a promise, but it's not really a promise that forever bars her from Roland. And then the only reason that it ends in tragedy is because like a magic glass gets her kidnapped and burned at the stake while he's busy murdering a bunch of rebels. Yeah, we we get all these like kind. I think part of it is that King won't commit, right? Mm -hmm. Is that she, we get like seven reasons. You know, one is like, you don't want to be a promise breaker. Mm -hmm. Another one is that it'll mean her aunt is kind of like out on the street. And even though she doesn't like her aunt, her aunt will, um, you know, uh, her aunt kind of was a mother to her. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's this kind of complicated feeling. Again, by the way, this is yet another Stephen King going back to the well, you know, to sup up another great ice cold drink of uh, women's issues with their mothers, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like that structures the whole thing. Another one is that um, her family used to have lots of things and now her family has very few things mm-hmm. and she can fix that. Uh, you know, we get the scene of her getting her childhood horse back. That's one of them, um, you know, uh, of kind of returning to glory. This mm-hmm. is a pathway to that. Uh, another one's having a child. She mentions that, that, mm-hmm. that might be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's like, and there's a couple more too, of just like things that get thrown out there, but none of those are compelling to her or, or they, they, they are floated and then seemingly forgotten by her as a character. Mm-hmm. You know, they are, ex- those scenes are excuses for her to have one of her two thoughts. They are not ways of like having a third thought. Right. Um, and that's really unfortunate, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to, to see how that goes. And it's, you know, it's weird too, to think about this in relationship to the regulators in particular, which is a novel about a woman who is trapped mm-hmm. between uh, a thing she knows is right, which is to like take care of this child, mm-hmm. and the monstrosity of having to do that thing. Right. And that is better told. I hate that book. I think that <laughs> book is garbage. I think if that book disappeared from reality tomorrow in a Thanos-like snap, it would be a better world today. Right? Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> I just think it. I think it's that bad. Uh. And yet, that is a well-told part of that book, and King fails to even hit that measure here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, the to put it a different way, Ari, Romeo, and Juliet, like, they are characters who go for it, right? And going mm-hmm. for it is what destroys them. They don't spend the book coming up with excuses not to go for it, which is kind of what happens with Susan and Roland here. Mm-hmm. Right. 100 percent. Um, and that's really the, the key difference. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out, uh, because you mentioned back when we read Rose Matter, you detected some of the influence prose wise of uh, Cormac McCarthy at the end of yeah. that book. And so this time I was kind of primed for it. And I realized it's it's not, you know, necessarily close. And it I, I it's the 90s and all the pretty horses was a very successful book. I'm pretty sure. King read it, right? He he seems hundred percent sure. He reads it a lot, or he reads a lot very clearly. Um, and it's not like uh uh necessarily deeply illustrative of uh what's going on here, but you can pick out elements of all the pretty horses in this as well, particularly this kind of like uh uh fraught love romance relationship with an intervening uh aunt character who says that it should not be and that sort of thing. Um and then of course like Susan spends a good 
excited amount of this book thinking about all the pretty horses that her family oversees. The current uh, Amazon thing, like blurb at the top for all the pretty horses is a blurb from Stephen King. Well, there you go. (laughs) I I don't. So he's definitely read it. I don't know when. I don't know when this blurb is from. But Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love a horse. My horse named Pylon. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, actually, I wanted to look that up. I'm going to do that on air because I'm like, I know what a pylon oh. is right now, but like, what is the historical meaning of pylon? Uh, this is an article from 2022. Someone asked King what his favorite book is. Uh, on uh. He said, on another day, 10 different titles might come to mind, like The Exorcist or All the Pretty Horses in Place of Blood Meridian. Right. So, like, huh. yeah, he's he's a he's a he's a McCarthy head. Yeah. OK, yeah. So the uh, yeah. OK, this makes a lot of sense. Like uh, pylon, obviously, is a structural meaning today and it means things, you know, like whatever's holding up the power lines. But you trace it far enough mm-hmm. back and it's talking about it's it's a word for like gate in ancient greek and it's talked about it's used to uh, describe structures of temples in egypt Mm. and things like that so maybe like a piaton a gate uh hey this is from 2022 is a video that king did that i was just reading like a little bit from here do you know what book he says is his favorite book Mm, I'm thinking I'm trying to like I'm I'm using my touch right that's what Elaine mm-hmm. has that's it is a novel I'll say that it is a novel okay I'm using my yeah. touch I'm like putting myself in communion with Steve right now all right Elaine do it okay his favorite novel is oh something by Mickey Spillane Lonesome Dove huh Larry McMurtry so that's in here too right yes uh-huh. all this western stuff you know he spent a lot of the 90s w- watching Western movies. Like, there's no way he didn't. That is so fast. And he's still... So we got, like, in the, you know, in the past 10, 15 years, we got crime novel Steve, which we've detected mm-hmm. all the way back at the beginning of his career. But yeah. we still haven't got true Western Steve. I don't think so, yeah. I don't think he's written just a like a... I mean, this is the closest one. I mean, it is a Western just tucked into this other thing. Right. With, with like, a, a big screaming... Uh, hell void you know <laughs> like right off screen the whole time right <laughs> um but uh but yes yeah, so i that, that i think he like sells it as best he can and like susan's his western novel protagonist and it yeah. like, kind of works and kind of doesn't yeah um uh i like all the other big coffin hunters just to to loop that back around and finish it i think they're cool i like uh de pap and uh reynolds mm-hmm like they're just hands, you know. They're yeah. fast, but they're not too fast. I like the showdown they all have, where like every character in the book shows up to hold a gun on someone else. <laughs> yes, that's cool. Uh, the uh, and we learn that Cuthbert's like good at shooting a, a slingshot. Shoot, shooting a slingshot, yeah. he uses that at the end. The end of the book, yeah, kind of as you said earlier, it pays out in a few different ways. Um, Susan gets killed because we already know there's been this kind of like Shirley Jackson's the lottery thing that's been hinted at a few times that Mm -hmm. that the the reap, which is like their big harvest festival. The reap has like a like a weird, you know, um, um, uh, the wicker man thing going on in it. Mm -hmm. 
Because everyone's a little bit on edge about what the Reap allows and what the Reap bonfire allows. Because Susan says it a couple times. She says, oh, if they're trying to, like, uh, like get rid of the, the, the quartet, the boys from the Inner Baronies, that's when the Reaping bonfire is. Mm-hmm. Right? So you get a sense that there's, like, maybe there's some, like, human sacrifice in the mix there sometimes. You know, maybe maybe not every time. But it, that's, like, a, an available pathway in normal years. Mm-hmm. I like that there's a little bit of, like, you know, children of the corny stuff going on there, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, what, mm-hmm. what are they all about out here in the boonies? Um, and so, uh, but she ultimately is sacrificed there. And, of course, her final lines uh, are about how much she loves Roland. And literally her final thoughts is she's being charred to death by fire is uh, about Roland. Mm-hmm. One of her two thoughts mm-hmm. she's allowed to have. Yep. But at the same time, they're like busting ass through this like John Farson encampment. They're blowing up tankers, <laughs> yes, you know, three 14 year old boys. Yeah, three 14 year old boys, one with a machine gun, <laughs> yeah. one with a uh, with a revolver and one with a slingshot. And they're running through this like rebel camp of 100 soldiers and they are blowing up tankers. And like, you know, the uh, there's so much description of them blowing it up and stuff. And uh, you get a sense. It's like, oh, yeah. Stephen King was there when they blew up that gas station in Maximum Overdrive. Like, he's been <laughs> yes. around a big explosion. He he gets it. He's really described. He's like, it kind of burns your face a little bit. It, like, makes it hard to breathe because, you know, like, all the oxygen is getting burned up. Uh, so I like that a lot where it's like, oh, yeah, like, Steve's, like, pulling on some real experience. But they, like, run through there. And as you said, there's this thing called a thinny. Mm-hmm. And the thinny is this warbling ass, like, breaking reality. It's, you know, theremin style. And it's and it's also the um, the the oil creature from the raft. Uh huh. It's it's directly that right. It like speaks to them in the same italicized way, and it's like, hey, life will be over. You'll be nothing but fun and and nothingness after this. Pain will be over. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and also we're thinking about Stephen King's kind of Christian turn in the 90s and how much that's part of like the kind of evangelical kingdom of heaven narrative, Mm. especially in the early 90s. Right. Like uh, uh, evangelical uh, um, uh, pastors are selling, uh, you know, this notion of um, freedom from pain, freedom Mm -hmm. from, Mm -hmm. from any of the things that might worry you. That's such a big part of that message in the 90s. And so there's a little bit of weirdness going on there with how those run into each other. And yeah, they just uh, get all these like super trained troops, some of whom are trained, some of whom are boys too, the, you know, that are the same age as Roland. And they run them into this canyon that like, uh, you know, this this trap. And then they skedaddle on out of there and just everyone gets eaten by it. And it's like slapping people just like the raft creature and like stripping the flesh from their bones and stuff. It's actually the blob. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from the 1980s version of the blob. Um, and uh, but that it's fun. And that's how they like solved the problem and we learned that essentially they like slowed down the good man's deal john farson's thing by like 20 months or something like that mm-hmm. um and i guess that he ultimately does get to use because the sitgo you know the oil tankers they're doing are there to like power ancient you know like an m1 abrams tank you know right. what i mean yeah. like like some weapon of war uh, that they just don't have fuel for. And uh, so I guess they get that going eventually. Yeah, because Gilead Falls, we know that. Gilead Falls at the Battle of Jericho Hill. It's the final thing. 
And it is mercifully a thing that Stephen King never fills in for us. But it will uh, be he, filled in on Patreon.com slash Range Touch as we read uh, the Gunslinger comics. Yeah, where the comic books feel a need to fill that in. And and the the Dark Tower comic books are like co-signed by King. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're canonical, but they are like acceptable. Someone said, can we tell the Battle of Jericho Hill? And Stephen King said, yes. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, there, there's a, as official as, you know, as it gets, I guess, other than being from the, the hand of King himself. Mm-hmm. So I guess we'll explore that. You know, we do get some hints. I don't, has it showed up yet where we find out that, is it Jamie DeCurry or does, is it Elaine who's killed by his own, by friendly fire? I don't remember. It's one of those two. It might be Elaine who gets mm-hmm. killed by friendly fire. Yeah. Um, you know, we get these little hints. Uh, in the uh, in the books about what happens there that that are more powerful than actually learning. Yeah, but anyway, that's for another another episode. Yeah. Uh, is there uh, any other extant stuff that we want to talk about here about Wizard and Glass? Uh, you mentioned saying maybe more about Farson's whole deal, but I don't know. If oh yeah, if there well, is. I, I guess the thing I'm thinking about that maybe you have more thoughts about this is that. We've gotten political king, uh-huh. you know what I mean, right? We we've got you know what I read as a Vietnam novel, and you could read that way or not, no matter what. Whether you read it as a political allegory novel in the Long Walk, or whether you read it as a more general kind of like American dystopian critique, um, wh- whichever you get to, you get a political king there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, pr- pretty directly, like here's what the state does, here's what people do. Maybe those things matter. This is a book about people preparing for war, about kids preparing to go to war. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen King's of the Vietnam generation, um, you know, hated Vietnam, notoriously voted for Nixon because he thought he had a plan to get us out of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have the good old fashioned Dance Macabre King who like stood up and told the Panthers that they were idiots or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, and and over the course of this, the, the show, we have gotten a kind of waxing and waning political king who sometimes through his characters uh in the and through his characters assumptions about the world and through repeated uh uh versions of that assumption we get a, a glimpse of maybe what he thinks in the world you know mm-hmm. it's not uh it's not that like a character says a thing and so that must be what king believes mm-hmm. it is that through repetition through continued kind of framing uh through perspective that happens over and over against whatever 40 books we've read mm-hmm. you do get a sense of what the political horizon of king is what he thinks is like available and what do you think what he thinks doesn't or what he thinks isn't um what he thinks is good what he thinks is bad he's got his he's got his finger on the scale for for the aristocracy yeah. you know um and we know it hasn't come up yet has it come up yet where he calls JFK a gunslinger uh, I can't remember. I mean, that was mentioned, I think, in uh, Drawing of the Three. Okay, yeah. I know it's it's going to come up again, too. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's part of that going on here, too. Yeah, because Jake's talking about JFK, right? Uh, no, it's um, uh, Susanna. Oh. Or at the time, you know, I think it's uh, she's Odetta, but... Um, Odetta there, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like the guy who drives her car or something is talking about JFK. Right. That's right. You're right. Um, maybe it's Jake who mentions it later on, like in the, in, in, uh, uh, in a forthcoming book. Mm-hmm. Any case, it doesn't really matter. I, there's something, I don't know. There's something weird here about, I don't know about Gilead, 
about uh-huh. the baronies, about the aristocracy. This is stuff you brought up earlier, right? Like you're you're all these kids are part of like a, a bloodline organization that like organizes the world. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm it, it, so something that is so one thing we can say in general, King seems to be deeply suspicious of any sort of populism. Uh, unless yeah. I guess it's like the populism that he's aligning himself with. Right. Right. Uh, uh, but that's kind of a, a, a thing. Um, the the, co- the common person is dumb. Uh-huh. And uh, only interested in themselves. Yes. Uh, there is also just in general a deep suspicion of anyone who is agitating for big change. Like the anything about like uh not that that is well almost all the time it ends up being in itself bad, but mm. uh there are like sort of two outcomes it seems like for King when someone is agitating for big change uh potential number one um it's all cynical b s that someone is using to lie to the idiot common man, like you just said, mm-hmm. right? So it's John Farson being like, ah, oh, look at this aristocracy. Like, isn't, doesn't it kind of suck that we're all beholden to them? Uh, but really, uh, he's just working for the Crimson King, doing whatever. Uh, and he's actually going to bring back hereditary titles that have been extinguished. Oh, uh, so it's either that, like it's all cynical, like politicking, or I think um, it's more of a, you know, like guard from the Tommyknockers thing. Uh, whatever thing you are striving for, whatever ideals you hold are going to be betrayed in the long run. And so it's better mm-hmm. to just not give a shit or to like, you know, uh, uh, avoid uh, the biggest possible changes because it's never going to work out. Yeah, there's something going on there. We're just like, keep the machine running, you know, because mm-hmm. like, what's the other option? I, I, I maybe 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 uh, this is a better way of phrase it. There is no positive vision of Gilead mm-hmm. or the inner baronies or in world at all. Like there there is no what are they for? The mm-hmm. only thing they exist for is to be threatened by Farson. And like, of course, that's a storytelling thing. Uh, like that he only talks about them in uh, King does only talks about these things in terms of like what happened. It is an action oriented story. So I get, you know, like why it wouldn't be like, and here's my long treatise. He's not Gene Wolfe. He's not giving you the long <laughs> treatise on like why Gilead is a force for good in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fascinating that like the world just exists to like fall to shit. And yes. that's like the best thing you could do is like maintain the world as it falls to shit as opposed to having any imagination for like what, it, you know, like should the inner baronies be doing something for these people in Megis? Maybe because that's the thing that comes up. They don't even go here. Right. Everyone is like one of the reasons they like flip to Farson is they're like, yeah, no one from Inworld comes here. Like, basically, we don't have any real connection to them other than, you know, some theoretical oath we took. Yeah. So I don't know. There's something going on here around that. And you can see why it's so appealing. And maybe this is King being critical. Like, maybe maybe we maybe I should be more charitable. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe it should that we could read this as King being like, yeah, in the absence of like something to care about, people will be um, just interested in like the next thing coming, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe that's the way to read this. Maybe that's a more charitable way to interpret what King is saying here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally, you know, as we know, he says uh, uh, they they shouldn't have political points. Yeah, you know, a, a book shouldn't be political. <laughs> 
or whatever he said in Dance Macabre. Yeah, although I do think like and I'm going to have more to say about this next month, actually. I do think uh, we are starting to see him um, grow out of some of the ideas he had about writing from that period. Mm -hmm. Although, yeah, uh, actually, maybe it'll be interesting to go to on writing, which I haven't read in a long time to see if he uh, explicitly changes some of his stances. Um, But like in the text, I can see a lot of things moving. Um, one other thing then that we should talk about if we're talking like meta is that this book has an afterword where, uh, King lays out his idea that, you know, the dark tower is my thing now. He says, wait, hold on. Before we say that, let me say one last thing that connects to what you just said. And this will be the part, what you're about to say will be the perfect outro to like finish the episode. Okay. The one last thing to say is that this has an addiction narrative in it Mm -hmm. and there is a concern that is attached to it yet again from King that like you might not be capable to, of doing the things you used to be able to do mm-hmm. when the orb is gone. Yeah. You know, because Rhea is really concerned about that. Like, this is her magic now. Yes. And huh. so it's so fascinating to me to see this kind of almost 10 years on from sobriety, right? This is 96. And so and he gets starts getting sober in 87. And so nearly 10 years on, like, this is still in his, like, thoughts about writing when he's getting meta about writing. This is still in the mix. Mm-hmm. What if you've lost it, you know, right. and what if you what if you do lose it? So I just want to get that in there because I think that will be important for on writing and also our next book, um, yeah. as as you were talking about, too. So yeah. but, yeah, uh, let's talk about this afterward as our kind of final thing, because, uh, yeah, the, the, this is his life work, right? Yeah, he's, yeah. For the first place he's really saying this, as far as I know. Yeah, uh, he says, I have written enough novels and short stories to fill a solar system of the imagination, but Roland's story is my Jupiter, a planet that dwarfs all the others, at least from my own perspective, a place of strange atmosphere, crazy landscape, and savage gravitational pool. Um, He says, I'm coming to understand that Roland's world, or worlds, actually contains all the others of my making. There is a place in Midworld for Randall Flagg, Ralph Roberts, the Wandering Boys from the Eyes of the Dragon, even Father Callahan, the damned priest from Salem's Lot, who rode out of New England on a Greyhound bus and wound up dwelling on the border of a terrible Midworld land called Thunderclap. Uh... He already knows that in 1996. Right. And he said before that he tried to work on a Salem's Lot sequel and just couldn't get it going. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine it wouldn't work if you begin with, all right, Father Callahan's in a fantasy world. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine that being a hard sequel to get rolling on, on that, in that those terms. Right. But he's already got that figured out here. Right. And this is like a big reveal because uh, one thing we haven't said is that at the end of this book, Roland and the Cotet, as they continue along the path of the beam heading toward the Dark Tower, they know the next stop is Thunderclap. Like that is uh, a thing that like one, the the grapefruit in Roland's flashback told him that, which we didn't even really get into this, is that Roland like has a vision of the tower and it's like the door will be closed to you. And he's like, no, it will fall, which is an interesting thing for him to say for reasons we'll get into much later. Uh, uh, but the, the tower will be closed to you. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to be there. But he sees Thunderclap, which is, you know, like Mordor or something horrible. Uh, and Randall Flagg draws a little, like, thundercloud on his note that he leaves everyone. 
And then here, just in the afterward, uh, King is like, yeah, and by the way, Father Callahan lives in Thunderclap, just in case, you know, anyone was wondering what was up with that. And we will follow up on that in, in Wolves of the Kala, but it's going to take a long time because notoriously, uh, there's a big break from this book to the next Dark Tower book. Although, uh, notably, last time in researching for the regulators, I read an interview with King that was about mainly the regulators, but it also had the first instance of a story that is going to be told multiple times from now until the next book, uh, which is King being um, contacted by a, a reader, uh, always an older woman uh, who is terminally ill. And I think what her illness is changes a little bit. Mm. Um and in various tellings, and I don't mean like from him, I think other people like retell this story and like change what's going on with her. Uh, but basically a reader reaching out and being like, hey, I uh, I love these Dark Tower books. Um, I've got such and such a disease, like, please, please finish it. I want to see how this story ends. And King having to say, I can't write the story ahead of time, right? I, I write it on its own pace or, or what have you. So this is a way that um, he sort of describes like how long it takes him to write. He even talks in this afterward about uh, what feels like a huge break between Wastelands and this one because he was uh, cagey about having to write about Roland's past and in particular having to write about, like, young love, which he wasn't sure he was able to do. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. There, there, there's that, right? That's the afterword. Is there anything else in there that you think is interesting? Well, because he, one of the things he talks about is, like, the beginning of... There's a 30-year gap between the first thing that he published in the Dark Tower, you know, the first story that eventually gets kind of wrapped into the Gunslinger and uh, and Wizard in Glass. And so I was looking here, like, what are the actual gaps between book publications? Mm -hmm. um, so Gunslinger's 82, Drawing of the Three is 87, five years. 87 to 91, four years. 91 to 97, six years. Mm-hmm. Um, 97 to 2003, six years, and then 2004, 2004. So, you know, um, and, and Wolves of the Cala, Song of Susanna, Dark Tower, all kind of written in a row, mm -hmm. you know, they're written at one time. They, they get Lord of the Ringed. Uh, and so it's actually kind of interesting to think about that, um, even though it feels like there's big gaps in between these books, there's really not. Mm -hmm. I mean, for him, there are, but like for, for readers, there aren't that much. At most, it was six years. Right. I mean, it's not George R.R. Uh, Martin territory, definitely. Yeah, yeah, of course. Or like it, lots of other people, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of like writing sequels and, and how those work. So it's kind of fascinating to think just how quickly they come. And also like, I don't know. I think I think you're right. Like the Wasteland's kind of a banger. Mm -hmm. You know, it just like works. Wizarding Glass kind of doesn't work. And like maybe you get a 50-50 split on the on the last three, like in terms of page count, mm -hmm. right? Um, here's something wild to give you a, a sense of um words. The gunslinger's fifty five thousand words. Drawing of the three is hundred and twenty five thousand words. The wastelands is hundred and seventy-three, right? So they're getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Wizard and Glass, 254,000 words. Ooh. Right? So it's like nearly 100,000 more than the previous book. And here's the last three. 242, 118, 272. So these things are big. Mm -hmm. Again, by the way, Song of Susanna, I think if he didn't care about having it be seven books, which he had said for years. Mm-hmm. Song of Susanna just would have been cut up and like split across the other two books. Mm -hmm. I think personally, it barely exists. 
but yeah, it's just like in terms of like things that happen, it's so not of a nut, so much of a nothing book. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, like these things are coming, and he wrote, you, you know, probably total seven hundred fifty thousand words, maybe maybe a million words. Like across all drafts and all yeah. versions of these final three books in like a year or two. Wow. Because the accident's 99, right? Yep. And then the book's 2003. Mm-hmm. And you probably couldn't write for a full year. You wrote Dreamcatcher in there. So we know yeah. some of his writing time was taken up longhand. So yeah, it's yeah. just the stamina of the thing. It is so deeply impressive what is coming up for what it is and how it happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll take I'll take the worst parts. <laughs> Of these books on on Stephen King's you know worst day, because think about it, he's like just recovering from getting smashed by a van, getting his whole body just annihilated, uh huh, like from an orbital strike, right? And he's just cranking these things out, and there's some cool ideas in there. So anyway, I don't know, maybe I'm higher on it in its context than other people are. We're gonna learn about more about writing. We're gonna learn more about uh, this being the pinnacle or the kind of. Um, linchpin of all his stuff the grand unifier we'll get all that stuff later on but that's not the next book we're reading michael no we're gonna do segments first that's true but i just wanted to make it clear that we were not diving directly into more dark tower for people who are perhaps not unaware yeah no you have to wait just like historically people had to wait but not uh six years you're gonna have to wait a several months Mm -hmm. i wasn't trying to jump uh jump to the end because uh even though my soul is still in the West at the mm-hmm. end of the episode. Always. <laughs> What's your favorite Kingism, Michael? Uh, my favorite Kingism is the segment where we each pick out something from what we just read that we think is an example of King's writing style that is good, indelibly Kingy, uh, distinctive about him. Uh, what I picked out is one that is, uh, I'm sure many people uh, uh, feel fondly for this one. I've talked about it before that there is this thing that Steve can do in his books where he will like fixate on a, fr- he'll have a character say a phrase or a phrase will come up and then characters will fixate on it and it will echo throughout their heads uh, through the rest of the story or in the case of this uh, particular phrase through the coming novels. This is a phrase that's going to come up again. It is a description of uh, the sound of the thinny which um, Jake and Susanna both compare. I don't think they they compare it to a busker that they heard in, I think, Central Park, maybe um, a guy who played a, a a saw. If you've ever heard a singing saw, it's very much like a theremin, right? A very high, like whiny, uh, spacey sort of sound. Um, and it's what the thinny sounds like. But I think it's Jake who has this memory of talking with the busker and uh, the busker saying to him, sounds Hawaiian, doesn't it? And so uh, at any point in this book or even in future books, when there are characters who are encountering thinnies and they hear the sound, there's like this echo in their head of this phrase sounds Hawaiian, doesn't it? And it just I don't know, for whatever reason, it works for me. I like it. Hmm. Uh, mine is like Stephen King's epic mode, right? Where he'll just like put dialogue in a character's mouth where you're like, this is the most badass thing a human has said. <laughs> and weirdly enough in, you know, in desperation that's put in the, the mouth of like a little kid who wants to die for God, like this uh-huh. little tiny Joan of Arc. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but here it gets to, it is the, you know, your soul remains in the West, you know, totally owning Jonas. And, and that scene in particular uh, is like Pete King because 
Jonas is good enough of a villain to know he's being lured. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't shoot uh, Roland. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about like the fantasy version of chess that King makes up that everyone is thinking about constantly to metaphorize <laughs> like all of their strategizing. Yeah, castles. Why don't you, like I understand the kingy maneuver here, right? Of like mm-hmm. it's not solitaire, it's watch me. Mm-hmm. It's not it's it's not chess, it's castles. Right. Well, the thing about castles, right, is that there's apparently like uh like you can build fortifications or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> it's a better it's a better game. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> it's chess 2. Yeah, chess t- <laughs> chess 2. Um mm-hmm. reckoning. Yeah. <laughs> Bloodlines. <laughs> uh, what in the King uh, of Verse? Wh- what was the name? Of, uh, Blood, what? Blood Wolf, whatever it was called. What's the name of that new Dragon Age I was making oh, fun of the other day? Uh, Dread Wolf, I think. Dread Wolf. The, he's the Dread Wolf. <laughs> oh, woo! The castles. Castles too. Castle harder. Uh, what in the King of Verse is uh, where we sketch out connections between what we just read and other things in like Stephen King's work. Uh, like the King of Verse has been here for several books now, kind of implicitly. Mm-hmm. And this is the book that really makes uh, the, the strong claim to the King of Verse with all the stuff that we've talked about. Right. The stand is here. Uh, mm-hmm. The dark man. Mother Abigail is also mentioned on a like note that they find like the woman is in Kansas or something. Gar- uh, she's she's in Nebraska or Nebraska. And, yeah. And the dark man's in the West, maybe Vegas. We get that kind of like a full, um, you know, write up like we saw in the stand. And someone especially says, like, that's in a different story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like explicitly or a story next door or something like that. Uh huh. Uh, because it's Dark Tower stuff, uh, the turtle comes up again because that's one of the guardians of the beam. We already talked about Garland. At one point, a character shouts the phrase Bool as kind of like a nonsense, like non sequitur thing. But that I know is going to come up again in Lisi's story. That's like a, a key hmm. phrase for that, I believe, if I'm remembering hmm. it correctly. Um, we get uh, th- so when they first arrive in uh, uh, post plague Topeka. Uh, we get all these fun little hints of, you know, kind of, you know, typical kingy stuff that this is this is Topeka, Kansas, but it's not the Topeka, Kansas that any of the characters are familiar with because there's a burger restaurant called like Bouncy Burgers or something that no one recognizes. There's a model of car called a Takuro Spirit. Uh, and then there's a like, uh, oh, the uh, sports team is called the whatever Kansas City's uh, sports team is. It's not that it's called something very close, but not that. Uh, between monarchs and royals. I don't remember which one's real and which one's fake. That's how much I care about the, sports. The monarchs are fake. Okay, great. There we go. As a, as a sports guy, uh-huh. <laughs> the monarchs aren't real. Okay, great. That's from the Venture Brothers. Ah. <laughs> uh, and then there's like uh, advertisements for what looks like Coca-Cola, but it's called Nozala. And Nozala is the one I wanted to really single out because I know this is the one that's going to recur in a couple of places. Um, in particular, uh, yes, it will. Yeah, right. This is the uh, one that like gets uh, King will start using uh, Nozala as a way. It's like the way that Tarantino uses his like fake brand of cigarettes to get around product placement. Uh, yeah, Apple, yeah. Apple, whatever. Yeah, Apple cigarettes, red apples, I think. Yeah, red apples. Um, so there's that. We already mentioned Father Callahan and all those other people mentioned in the afterward. Um, but then the other thing. Well, oh, the, the, sorry. Just the, the one thing you didn't mention is like the characters themselves do this operation. Like Eddie and, and Jake are like, all right, is this our world or someone else's? 
let's try to list all the things that are different. It's like one of those like find the uh-huh. the find the differences photographs, right? Where you go <laughs> gotta like flip back and forth and be like, all right, let's see here. Oh, there's a, there's a goblin over there. They literally do it for like a full ten pages, uh-huh. and they're like, shoo. My whole world wasn't destroyed by a plague. Yes. <laughs> but but so like King's really putting it out there in front to be like, there are different worlds. Uh-huh. Not only are there other worlds than these, but Kansas is in some of them. Right. Uh, so some other really interesting and weird connections that happen here for some reason. Uh, a lot of work is done to connect the location of Magus and all the stuff that's happening here to uh, the first book, to the gunslinger. Uh, Sheb, yeah. the piano player in the saloon in uh, Hambry, is the same Sheb who is the piano player in uh, whatever town that Roland kills everyone in in that book. Sheb's a little freak. Yeah. <laughs> he's licking the, he's licking people's stools after they sit there. Yeah. Oh, uh, man, what you doing, bud? Uh, apparently, uh, uh, the guy who has the, the like talking bird named Zoltan, he's also someone who lives in Hambry because one of the visions Roland has in, uh, the grapefruit is like seeing him later. Uh, and then I think it's Coral Thorin who remembers that at one point, uh, this preacher woman came through town and her name was Sylvia Pittston. And that's the same preacher woman who gets, uh, impregnated by, uh, the man in black in the gunslinger and uh, uh, is like, you know, like rabble rousing in the town again where Roland kills everyone. Um, yeah. And yeah, architecturally. In terms of like what's going on. Um, part of the reason that it's so difficult to draw pictures, you know, like maps to, to do cartography on the world of the Dark Tower is that. uh it doesn't really like move linearly and it's really hard to figure out like the directions people go because like the inner baronies are in and then Roland moves west to do this and then he goes back east, does all kinds of stuff in the east again for a long time. Mm-hmm. Then he goes west again past Megis into the desert, which, you know, they they give you hints of, but also the sea is over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he keeps going west through the desert, across the mountains, gets to the Western Sea eventually. Um, and then after goes north to collect everybody mm-hmm. and then starts going east again mm-hmm. and then and then hits Lut. So like the the Roland's journey is like a big, weird circle and like. Is this ocean the right ocean? You know, it's really hard right. to make sense of. And you can find maps that were just like nonsensical. Mm-hmm. It's best not to think too hard about it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Repeat to yourself, it's just some books. I should really just relax. Right, it's just some books. Just <laughs> read the books. Don't think about it too hard. Because if you start thinking about it, it's like real weird. <laughs> uh, to the uh, point where King's like, hey, uh, time and space is breaking down. So just calm down. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape, the segment where we go through all of the songs that were listened to or like quoted in in what we just read and review. Can, them. Wait, can we go back? You said yeah. you have Ralph Roberts in here. Is Ralph Roberts in the afterward? Yes, he's mentioned. I already read that. Oh, I just totally missed that. Even when you reread yeah. it, I, yeah. I was so uh, focused in on Callahan. Yeah, Sorry. he mentions uh, Ralph Roberts, the wandering boys from Eyes of the Dragon and Father Callahan. Oh, yeah, I got the other two. I just totally yeah. I uh, Ralph Roberts. uh Flying off my brain like water off a duck's back even now. <laughs> but yeah, we got the mixtape. We're going to give some five or uh, up to five stars and mm-hmm. down to half a star 
uh, reviews of the songs in um, in this book. Yeah, yeah. Now, just to uh, clear clear something up here, there are many songs in this book that are mentioned that do not appear to be real songs. But I have uh, done a little bit of imaginative work here. And by imaginative work, I mean like I was searching around to see if these could possibly be based on anything. And I found some person's blog where they were like, here are all the songs that don't appear to exist. But here are the songs that they could be based on if they were real songs. And if we imagine this into like the far post-apocalyptic future. So why not? It makes the mixtape longer and people love this segment. Cameron, you get to start. Velcro fly in French. Uh, I think it's like a three star song. I'm okay. sure that I've reviewed this before. I think it's like a three star song. It's good. Okay. Does that it being in French? Because I think it's like there's a point where like Blaine like plays it for them and Eddie mm-hmm. has to take a minute and he's like, oh, that's Velcro Velcro fly again, but it's in French. Uh, does French add or subtract for you? Let me see if I can find it. I looked because I, I I didn't try. Did you already look? I looked. I do not think there is in fact a French recording of Velcro fly. It doesn't change the score. Okay. I think Velcro for Lies, the uh, badass beats. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, Careless Love, which is a traditional. This is a song that uh, Susan sings to herself. Um, I'm giving it five stars because I tend to like it whenever I encounter a version of it. I think it's pretty good. Um, hey Jude, uh, one star. Okay. Started out bad. You didn't have to make it bad. <laughs> A uh, whole lot of shaking going on by Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, three stars. How much shaking do you think was going on? I mean, I think we we currently are acclimated to levels of shaken that were unthinkable to Jerry Lee Lewis and his cohort. Um, That's right. If we yeah. if we show Jerry Lee Lewis uh, uh, like a contemporary music video, mm-hmm. it would it would uh, blow his brain out the back of his skull, <laughs> yeah. like in a comical way where it's like fully formed. Like uh, like it goes into a Fallout robot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And his eyes would bug out Tex Avery style. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Golden Slippers, a traditional song. Uh, I forgot to listen to it. I'm going to do it live. Okay. You ready? I listened okay. to the other ones. Um. Okay. Uh huh. Okay. I'm making a gut. I'm making a gut choice here. Okay. It's fine. It's two stars. <laughs> Great. Okay. Uh, I I have a song that is called in the text "Play Ladies Play," but which might be based on Bob Dylan's "Lay Lady Lay," and this gets one star because I think if you remove the vocal track, I might really like the instrumental. <sighs> I got a uh, fare thee well dink song. Five stars. I love dink. Oh, <laughs> uh, great. Uh, I got a, uh, so there's a song called red dirt boogie, which may be based on red dirt boogie brother by Jesse Ed Davis. I had never heard of this song before four stars. It's really good. It's like a, a sort of like guitar driven honky tonk kind of funk song and it's got uh, a really interesting like vocal performance with it as well um so yeah that that's neat um now why are there two boogies well i've got big, big bottle boogie uh-huh 
why are there two boogies? Well, that's the thing is that these all, these are all songs that are played by Sheb in the saloon. Oh, right. Okay. So everyone loves to boogie. Got it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song's fine. I, it it just sounds like some like. Uh, it, it, I guess what's notable is, is this is not a song that would play in like a Western. Uh, you know, like zone. Mm hmm. You're not going the the good and the bad and the ugly. They're not playing this song. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like a raucous little jukebox. It's like three stars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that these are you know th- these might not even be right. King might not have been thinking about Bob Dylan at all uh, when he came up with the no, thing. No, certainly not. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how that could be possible. This is all For Uncle Steve. All based on me taking. Uh, see, I wanted to look up who who wrote this blog post. Mm-hmm. It's for some sort of. A company? Yeah, a marketing graphic design studio called Devil Design that in 2012 has a, this is on Blogspot, uh, just wrote like a big long post that was uh, like a Dark Tower playlist. And that's where I got uh, most of these like Cognate songs. This one is not a Cognate song, though. We're off to sing the wizard, off to see the wizard (laughs) by the Wizard of Oz cast. Uh, This is this is five stars. It's great. It's perfect. I think we're off to sing the wizard. Yeah, we are. I got somewhere over the rainbow by Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. Five stars. Mm-hmm. Damn, Judy. <laughs> Look in my you hierarchy. Got pipes. <laughs> yeah, it goes in my hierarchy. It's like Judy Garland. Uh, skip ten billion slots. The Beatles. Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> And then underneath that is like a, a washing machine with a brick in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but at least it's got rhythm. Oh, ah! yo, take that. Uh, Popular music. <laughs> no, Judy Garland's great, though. Uh, the Green Door by Jim Lowe. Uh, I guess I'm going to give this two stars. But the main thing to think about if you listen to it is this is where we get the title of one of the most successful pornographic films of all time. Really? Yeah, behind the green door comes from this mm-hmm. song. Huh. Yeah, you should have you heard this song? Pull it up, listen no, to it. No. I only listen to the songs I'm okay. asked to listen to. All right, to. never mind. I'm gonna drop it in here. I'm gonna drop in a good, like, legal couple seconds for everyone to to think about. Okay. Okay. I'll, I mean I'll listen to it. I'm just saying I didn't pre-listen to it. Uh-huh. All right. Uh it's from a novelty songs album. <laughs> Yeah, it's about staying up all night. I get it. Right. Yeah. It's about like going to like a speakeasy or something. Right. But (laughs) just 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 to think about that and think, okay, so that's where we got behind the green door. Famous pornographic film. Interesting. They do laugh a lot behind the green door. All right. (laughs) Sounds weird. I got Big Iron, a famous Fallout song, Big Iron. I think it gets four stars. Okay. All right. It's so funny to imagine this. Uh Uh-huh. Like playing while Roland is around. (laughs) It's like so on the nose. Uh Uh-huh. 
It's like if I like I walked into a bar and like it just started being like academic guy with podcast, boom, 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 boom. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, it's my song. <laughs> guy who likes banana bread, wah 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 wah. It's like, oh, oh here I come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, it's great. I'm glad to make that got, song if you want to. Yeah, glad we got that crossover. Uh, yeah, uh, now that we've finished our Fallout show, too much future. By the way, check it out. YouTube.com/slash/RangeTouch. Get out of here, Fallout. Bye. That's it. That is it. Uh, just a little reminder that this month there is a bonus episode where we will be discussing uh, the first big omnibus edition of like the Marvel comics. What the, it's like the Gunslinger Beginnings or something was the series. Yeah, the that previously they were kind of hard to get in print, uh, but now they've released a big omnibus version, so they're like just out. So we're reading the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it covers. I, I so it's a pretty hefty book. It's about eight hundred and something pages long. The first quarter of it covers the entirety of Wizarding Glass. The rest of it is everything that happens between the end of Wizarding Glass and the beginning of the Gunslinger. So there is going to be. A lot of decisions that have been made that Cameron and I will be talking about. Uh, I think yep. it'll be interesting. Uh, yeah, so patreon.com slash range touch and you can uh, support us there. Get that bonus episode and help us uh, continue our quest to uh, read all of the Stephen King books in publication order. Another thing that really helps is that if you uh, review us, give us a five star review on your podcast platform of choice. But if you give us specifically one on Apple Podcasts, and if you leave a review that is uh, five stars and also funny, Cameron may read it out loud on air. That's right. I'm pulling it up right now to do that. I'm scrolling. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. <sighs> Leave us those five stars, by the way. You know, mm-hmm. we're trying to get up to five stars. You know, yeah. as our, we're still at 4.9. We need more five stars. <laughs> um, There's there's a lot of just nice and serious reviews. Oh, <laughs> uh, which is great. I'm not mad about it, but it, you know, hard yeah. to. Uh, here's one from Cladmere, a great podcast where the two hosts enthusiastically review interesting varieties of tunes. Although why they keep reviewing Bob Dylan songs is beyond me. Also, the music review is buried deep inside some sort of extensive and ponderous backstory <laughs> on where the songs came from that makes the whole thing feel like wading through muck inside a swamp inside a bayou to find lost diamonds. Feels almost like reading books of a certain author whose name is just at the tip of my tongue. The title of this, of course, is Great Music Review Podcast. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Great. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, And uh, next time, next month, we will be back uh, to talk about the next book that was published by Stephen King in the following year, 1998. We will be discussing Bag of Bones. I don't I think I read this book one time. Hmm. I might not even have finished it. Yeah, I read it also one time. Um. I liked some parts of it. I remember those pretty clearly. It is a ghost story. So I have some like, you know, predisposition to be positive on it to begin with because I love ghost stories. There is also a lot of stuff that I remember being questionable even to young me. Uh, Mm. Particularly, we're going to see a resumption of King trying to write about race in America. Mm. 
Um, and I will, will, I'll see how that feels, uh, uh, with all of the perspective that I have now on it. Um, but also having started reading it already, uh, just a little preview, uh, this is King swinging for the fences in terms of wanting to be taken, uh, seriously in kind of a literary aspect. Um, and that's interesting. That's what I'll say. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about his, uh, contract here. It's on the Wikipedia page, Mm -hmm. right? The contract Um, stuff around this book is really fascinating. Yeah, supposedly he was getting, uh, he's getting a lot of money per book. Mm -hmm. Viking was apparently giving him 15 million per book Mm -hmm. in advance. Mm -hmm. And that was not That'll really get you to finish a book, by the way, is to know that you've got 15 million already in the bank. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna we'll, we'll get into it. I'm I'm curious about it. Um, and I uh, got my copy right here. Unfortunately, for the bonus episode, we're not going to be able to watch the adaptation, at least not yet. So we're gonna have to figure out what the next bonus episode is. But we will let you know that on the bonus episode for this episode, Patreon.com/slash/RangeTouch. We'll be back next month with Bag of Bones. Mm-hmm. And we are not doing it for fifteen million dollars. What are we doing it for? We do it for Steve.